Light and Shadow, a podcast about the complex themes presented in the horror genre. I'm your host, Nicole, and it's time to share another dark tale. Candyman has always held a special position in the slasher genre. The upcoming adaptation by Jordan Peele and Nia DaCosta inspired me to revisit the original franchise and have a conversation about its highs and lows with the crew from the Straight Chilling podcast. This month, we'll be covering all three films and looking forward to what's next for Candyman. everybody. I'm very excited today because we are kicking off the first of three episodes that are going to be a little different from the norm. We're doing a deep dive into a franchise instead of just a general topic. And I'm going to be joined by guests instead of just talking to myself (laughs) and you, the audience. Uh, So it's time to welcome my very first guest from the Straight Chilling podcast, Justin or juice, or soju, or soju stains, or, you know, whatever. <laughs> what up? It's Shiboy Soju. We'll go with soju today. <laughs> Classic. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, I am super excited uh, that you and the other guys are going to join me for this. Of course, yes. you guys did like a little special for me for Halloween last year, but we weren't <laughs> yeah. like together doing it. So this is this is a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm excited. Thank you for having us on. And I'm excited to do this one, but also you're doing the whole trilogy. And so I'm excited to follow along as like a listener of the show and just like knowing the other guys will be on. So I think it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm excited. So before we uh, dive into the movie, um, let's talk a little bit about like personal history first. When was the first time that you saw Candyman? So I actually saw Candyman for the first time with the other boys from the Straight Chilling crew. And we were actually talking about this the other day because it was before the podcast was actually started. So I would say probably about eight years ago was the first time I saw this movie. And I wasn't even going like super hardcore into horror then. Um because it was before the cast. So I wasn't watching one like um, every week, like I am now horror movies. So even back then I was pretty surprised by Candyman. Um, I wasn't even really familiar with it at the time. So it was like completely new to me and it just felt really unique from a lot of, it it gets, I guess, paired in with slashers. um, But it's, it's, kind of this beast on its own. And I was really impressed and have always kind of carried a positive memory um, with me throughout the years. Since then, I've maybe seen it just maybe one or two times since then um, in the past eight years. But yeah, so it, uh, it was a while ago. How about you? Um, so the first time I saw it, I was a child. 
Um, okay. Yeah, that's a, a lot of the classics. The first time I, I saw it was as a child, but um, I actually saw Candyman 2 first, probably because like that's what the video store had. <laughs> okay. Nice. Um, yeah. The old yeah. blockbuster or whatever. I, yes. <laughs> I saw like all of the, you know, two, three, four, five in a series first, just because like they never had part one, like ever. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It was a, a weird trend, but um, so I saw the second one first and like sort of fell in love with just the story and the character and everything. So I had to seek out the first one. So I probably saw it in like the mid nineties, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I remember just not understanding what I was watching. (laughs) (laughs) Did it have an effect on you having seen the second one first when you finally did see the first one? Um, I remember thinking that I didn't like it as much as the second one, just because like, and of course we'll dig into this more in other episodes, but like the second one, the second one's just a little bit more like plot wise, like linear. It's not as Mm -hmm. creative and kind of as like boundary breaking. So there was stuff that was going on and like things they were doing with the, with the plot that I just, as a kid, I just didn't get it. I was like, okay, why are we here now? Yeah. Um, (laughs) But I, I always really loved just the whole kind of world and like visuals of Candyman. And it's always stuck with me in a very particular way. And, and kind Mm -hmm. of like Chucky scared me. Candyman scared me in the same kind of way where like, I thought he was going to like, you know, pop out from the behind the like the bathroom door when I was at school yeah. or something. <laughs> Gotta check your mirrors real make sure they're real solid in there. Yes, yes, for sure. Have you ever heard of Candyman? And if you look in the mirror, you say his name five times. In cities everywhere. Candyman. They whisper his name. Right. Candyman. It's just a story. Candyman. Candyman. Just a ghost story. Candyman. An entire community starts attributing the daily horrors of their lives to a mythical figure. The legend first appeared in 1890. He was attacked, mutilated, and burned to death. Poor Candyman. Helen, a woman died in there. Leave it. Everyone knows he isn't real. That's modern oral folklore. Everyone. Except Helen Lyle. Where did I get? It ain't safe around here. I don't scare too easy. Wanna know about Ruthie Jane? They ain't never gonna catch him. Who? Candyman. Who is that? I came for you. Do I know? She is about to discover. Helen? Get out! Get out! What's behind the mystery? I'm sick. What's behind the legend? Listen, he's under the bed! And most terrifying of all... Come with me. What's behind the mirror? He's here. about the history of the movie and and give a little synopsis. Um, Candyman follows a graduate student whose research summons the spirit of the dead. 
When Helen Lyle hears about Candyman, a spirit with a hook hand who is said to haunt a notorious housing project, she thinks she has a new twist for her thesis. Braving the gang-ridden territory to visit the site, Helen arrogantly assumes Candyman can't really exist until he appears, igniting a string of terrifying grisly slings. But the police don't believe in monsters and charge Helen with the crimes, and the only one who can set her free is Candyman. So Candyman is actually based on a short story called The Forbidden by Clive Barker. And the film came to fruition after a chance meeting between um, the director Bernard Rose and Clive Barker, where Rose expressed interest in Barker's story, The Forbidden, and Barker agreed to license the rights. So this is where it gets a little bit interesting. Clive Barker's story, I'd heard that it was um, a little bit different, but his story revolved around the themes of the British class system in contemporary Liverpool. And of course, Bernard Rose then chose to refit the story to Cabrini Green's public housing development in Chicago and instead focus on the themes of race and social class in the inner city United States. Okay. Interesting. And to piggyback off that too, this was something I had never heard, but according to a journalist uh, named Steve Bagheera, one source of inspiration may have been a pair of articles that he wrote for the Chicago Reader in 1987 and 1990 about the murder of Ruthie Mae McCoy, a resident of Chicago's Abbott Homes Housing Project. In 1987, McCoy was killed by an intruder who entered her apartment through an opening behind the bathroom's medicine cabinet. Yeah, I actually <laughs> read that. It was so wild because she called the police, but they couldn't understand what she was saying. Like she was going through the window. And so they thought, or coming through like the bathroom or something. So they thought she was just kind of like, she was an older woman. So they sent police who, but by that time, I think she was already killed because when she, when they knocked, like nobody responded and they couldn't just like get in. And then it wasn't until like hours later when a neighbor called and was like, something's really wrong. Um, that they found her dead, which is terrible. Uh, but yeah, they came through her medicine cabinet, just like in this film. Yeah. That's terrifying. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw this movie thinking that like, wow, that's so creative. Like who would ever think to do that? So then when, when I just found out that it actually happened to somebody, I was like mm -hmm. nightmare fuel. It's terrifying. <laughs> that is one of those things that I feel like, especially you watching it as a kid, even now I'm kind of like, let me check my medicine cabinet. Like just making sure that it's like, there's no way I could totally see that sticking in your psyche, um, like later down the line and, and just being like, Oh yeah. Like, let me check my medicine cabinet. Cause that is, that's basing it on that real life. Like crime is, is pretty brilliant because it's unique in its own right. So I guess it was just like a, a a lucky chance that he came across that information. Yeah. Well, and most people like these days don't even have medicine cabinets. So it's, it's, uh, it's even, it makes it even more of a novelty if you happen to live in like an older house or something that has a medicine cabinet. But yes, every time I see a medicine cabinet now, I'm always like, <laughs> Yeah. Really Make sure that was solid in there. <laughs> have you read you're you're a bit of a bookworm. Have you read any of the books of blood by Clive Barker? I have not. The only thing I've read is The Hellbound Heart. Okay. Um I want to, I definitely want to read The Forbidden though. I just got to track it down. 
So yeah, I was trying to, it's in volume five of books of blood apparently. And another one, there's a couple of short stories that I didn't realize um, that he had done. We did Rawhead Rex earlier this year. Mm -hmm. And that's one, that's one that he wrote that's in, I think volume three. And um, that's kind of surprising about the basis of the story because like Rawhead Rex is based in Ireland and the synopsis of this one, it sounds very similar. And I'm wondering if somebody just mixed it up with the movie because it says it follows a university student named Helen who is doing her thesis on graffiti and then visits this thing. But that does not sound like it matches up well. Um, no. So now I'm kind of curious. Uh, <laughs> I would like to check out some of his work because he's a very interesting person. Yeah, he, he's kind of a creative genius too. Like he paints and he writes and he directs and he does kind yeah. of does it all. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting uh, that they're able to kind of rework the ideas of maybe kind of like the class and race system um, of the United States um, into kind of more like off of his like original idea. So that that's... um. Very intriguing. Yeah. Well, and so it's, I guess you can credit Bernard Rose with Candyman being black and giving us, you know, the amazing Tony Todd, because yeah. if he had adapted it straight from Clive Barker, you know, it wouldn't have that whole like inner city kind of race angle, which I think is really important to the story. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it has sparked a ton of conversation surrounding it um, because of kind of the some of the ideas that brought up, but also some of the things that it neglected. And so now that we're getting kind of like a modern, um, not like remake, but um, like continuation of, of the myth, I guess, um, it'll be interesting to see how they tr- start to try to tackle some of those, those ideas um, that they felt were kind of maybe neglected a little bit in the 90s or weren't touched on fully. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for that, for that sequel to be coming out. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm really interested. Um, you know how us horror fans are, we kind of detest when like old things get made new. But when I heard that there were black filmmakers involved, I was like, okay, well, I think this will be really fresh and really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Because obviously having black perspectives in the process is just is naturally going to like give it a fresh take. So I'm, I'm really excited to see what they do. So I think that's a good uh, jumping off point for us to uh, move into just like discussing sort of like the urban legend and the lore of Candyman, because I yeah. think that's part of what makes this such a special movie. So in the movie, the uh, professor who's like an acquaintance of Helen gives uh, Helen and Bernadette her like co-writer and friend a breakdown of like the Candyman <laughs> story. Yeah. And this whole section is one of my favorite parts of the movie. It's like super creepy and it's kind of magical. And like Helen's face is lit like really like glamorous and she's like smoking this cigarette. And so I've, I've always loved this part. Candyman was the son of a slave. His father had amassed a considerable fortune from designing a device for the mass producing of shoes after the Civil War. Candyman had been sent to all the best schools and had grown up in polite society. He had a prodigious talent as an artist and was much sought after when it came to the documenting of one's wealth and position in society in a portrait. I was in this latter capacity 
that he was commissioned by a wealthy landowner to capture his daughter's virginal beauty. Well, of course, they fell deeply in love and she became pregnant. <laughs> Poor candy man. Father executed a terrible revenge. He paid a pack of brutal hooligans to do the deed. They chased Candyman through the town to Cabrini Green, where they proceeded to saw off his right hand with a rusty blade. And no one came to his aid. But this was just the beginning of his ordeal. Nearby, there was an apiary. Dozens of hives filled with hungry bees. They smashed the hives and stole the honeycomb and smeared it over his prone, naked body. Candyman was stung to death by the bees. They burnt his body on a giant pyre and then scattered his ashes over Cabrini Green. Candyman now haunts Cabrini Green, and he materializes when you look into a mirror and say his name five times. So, obviously, Candyman plays off that, like, familiar ghost-in-the-mirror trope, which Mm -hmm. has been around for a long time, but I think, you know, expands upon it in a really creative way. So, did you ever do that with your friends when you were a kid? Not that I remember. I I don't think I had a moment that like stands out to me where I did the Bloody Mary in the dark, like with the mirror and the bathroom and stuff. Did you? Uh, I remember doing it one time and it was definitely Bloody Mary. I don't think Candyman had come along yet, but like the bathroom was dark and I remember there was one girl who started to scream. And so we all started to scream and we all ran out. And then everybody yeah. was like, oh my God, I saw something. But like, of course, nobody did. But this yeah. was fun. It was fun. <laughs> I, I love, uh, one thing I, I love about this movie and those kind of ideas is I'm actually currently working on a, a program focused around like campfire tales um, for my Korean class where I'm teaching them like about like campfire tales, like American lore. And so um, those, yeah, those kind of ideas, um, even surrounding this movie, there were so many times where I was like, hey, that's like just like even the hook for a hand. Um, I'm like, I don't know where that comes from but it's it feels like just such an ingrained part of my dna and our culture of like sitting around the campfire the guy with like the hook for a hand it's like that just seems like so like like just ingrained in me i don't know like what particular story that's from but um you know it, it's like one of those things everybody knows um the guy for a hook for a hand and so so many of those moments seem to kind of come up in this movie because he's kind of this hodgepodge or almost I wrote in my notes almost this Frankenstein of lore yeah I know (laughs) even even the lore itself is like part of another lore it's it's weird um like there were times I wrote a couple notes um he hypnotizes like Dracula and even at one point like kind of flies like Dracula where she he's floating just above her face but also and now I feel like this is completely unintentional but um 
the score from Philip Glass. Mm -hmm. And I guess his overall attire also kind of gives me a Phantom of the Opera vibe, especially to the way that the projects like where he kind of resides is kind of like done up like this old church a little Mm -hmm. bit, especially toward the end. Yeah. So I get a little bit of the Phantom Opera. Obviously, you have the Bloody Mary um, situation. So there's so many pieces here, I feel like. Um, you know what's interesting about The Phantom of the Opera is apparently when I was doing research, Tony Todd said that he always wanted to be the Phantom of the Opera. That's all. Yeah. And so he like brought that energy to the role. That's cool. I totally gave me the vibes, especially like the kind of forbidden love type of situation yeah. and then just the setting. And then on top of that, the, the the score that goes along with this movie, it all kind of adds to that Phantom of the Opera. But that's just one piece. And even when she's and there are things that aren't really explained because the bees, I mean, the bees are explained, um, but the bees are another piece of lore. Of course, I can't help but think of the wicker man when I see the bees. <laughs> um, but even the razor blades and the candy, like that's just like kind of a an old like thing from the oh, 80s, yeah. I guess, maybe like... Um, and just it feels like there's at least 10, I would say, like borrowed um, lores that kind of just, again, make up this like Frankenstein mm-hmm. lore monster. But this this movie to me with the lore, it always felt like a tightrope where they would add this new piece and I felt like the wind was blowing, like, oh, this is getting like maybe a little or too much. But they always kept it <laughs> in line. Like, it, even though there were old things that I felt like were familiar to me, like, oh, that's not new, like the razor blades and the candy. But they work them so well to make this new like character that also just feels really original in the realm of horror films, especially in the 90s, to kind of stand out from the other slashers of the time that they never fall off that tightrope for me. It always feels like a straight line. So it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I agree 100%. And um, one of the things maybe that makes like the razor blades and the candy and the hook and the coming through the mirror and all of that stuff real is, um, you know, Candyman talks to Helen about how people have to believe in me in order for me to be real. And mm-hmm. so that's why he comes to her and starts killing everybody because she identifies the wrong man that they then say is responsible for all the killings. And so he's mm-hmm. like, well, Oh, well if my, if my name is going to be whispered in the hallways, then yeah. you have to come with me and we have to like murder more people. Um, so maybe that's part of like what makes all these things real is, you know, mm-hmm. kids are afraid they're going to find razor blades in their candy and there's razor blade candy and candy man's lair and all of those things. Like I, I think the, the whole belief in these you know, cultural stories and the reality of Candyman are just sort of like linked together in a really complex way that I've never really thought about before. Yeah. And honestly, even that, I think I made a note on here, even that kind of reminded me of Friday the 13th. No, no, I'm sorry. A Nightmare on Elm Street, like mm-hmm. Freddy Krueger, mm-hmm. who kind of has the same thing. It's like once people stop 
fearing him, he like starts to lose his power. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. man, even, I mean, there was, um, even the flash, there's a scene where she goes into the bathroom where she's taking pictures where a kid was castrated, which is terrible, um, yeah. in this film. Um, but she takes a picture and there's like a flash of candy man. And I couldn't help but think of the exorcist. Um, oh, yeah. like there, there's the quick flash uh-huh. of the face or whatever. Uh-huh. And I was like, man, this feels <laughs> like a love letter. Like candy man feels like a love letter to horror across so many different generations and mediums like the old school especially with the music and his like get up and everything and even his like backstory of kind of like where he comes from so it feels like like older horror like the Draculas and the Frankensteins and and those kind of things but then also like the modern horror like I you know hints of the exorcist and hints of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street like it just feels like this beautiful uh, culmination of like so many different um, horror inspirations. I love it. It's great. Yeah, it definitely um, reminds me of Nightmare on Elm Street in, in the way that it's very visual. The villain is so compelling and and how it doesn't always make sense. Like you don't always know where <laughs> or why you are, but that's like yeah. part of the appeal, you know, which um, I feel like maybe because of that, like I've watched Candyman probably at least a half a dozen times, maybe more in my Mm -hmm. life. And I feel like I maybe don't even a hundred percent still know exactly why everything is exactly the way it is. Like, it seems like there's still some, like some holes. And I don't know if like that's intentional or if I just haven't always been paying attention, but like, did you have any of that sort of like, confusion when you were watching it of like wait how how does this connect to this like definitely especially toward the end when he says like it was always you Helen and I was like well is she reincarnated are we doing like a imitap type of thing here where it's like his ancient <laughs> love or like what so there there were some things but also with the tightrope kind of analogy it also kind of goes like there's almost this idea of dream logic because even in this film um the actress playing helen like she she was hypnotized and so like you were saying earlier like that kind of look on her face so part of this filming was she would say like i had to stop it eventually because i would not remember almost a day of filming she would be like i i would go under i would be hypnotized and they would get that crazy like glazed look that she has um which is a kind of special part of this movie they do it several times So it almost even toes that line of like in this film, they're like, oh, it's dream logic or and so you're right. You're like, is it really happening? And if so, how is it connected? But they never really dive completely into the idea of dream logic where it's like anything could be anything. There's still like a very solid narrative and it's very linear. um, But strange things do happen and you're not really it's like sure like why or how. Um, And I think that's on purpose. I think that's to distinguish it a a little bit, but I could be wrong. Maybe they kind of just fell into that accidentally. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Well, like even at the end, whenever, um, you know, she like saves the baby from the fire and she kills Candyman. It's, it's like very, the fact that she like comes back at the end and like, Mm. she's now like the new Candyman. It's like, how did that happen? Like, what's the deal with that? Because, you know, I thought, especially whenever we we realized that 
maybe like Helen, yeah, is his reincarnated lover. It's like, oh, well, she's mm-hmm. going to die and they're going to be together. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of like, how did she become the new Candyman? Is it because she killed him and like now she has to take his place because that's there always needs to be that figure in culture? Yeah. I get also, I mean, like, that's what he promised her. And I don't know if there was some kind of ritual because he was like, you will, after she accept, like accepted his help, he said, like, you are mine now. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to live forever. So I don't know if like she was claimed, like, like her soul maybe was claimed at that point. And so even though she was like, no, I'm going to reject you and kill you to save the baby, um, the, she was already too far gone because she called on him to like free her from the the psych ward and everything like that so it's like well oh maybe i mean i could like try to justify it but i see you're absolutely right i don't think there's any solid evidence either way yeah and you know not that we need it but that was one of the things that i always (laughs) was just kind of like i always wondered if like i like i missed something you know yeah (laughs) And even then, she's still using the hook. It's like he was, he died with the hook on his hand. They just yeah. kind of throw it into her grave after the fact. She's still like walking around Chunk. as a ghost. Like she's got to carry this hook around. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, and that's kind of an interesting dynamic too. Cause it's like all of the people at Cabrini Green like fear Candyman, mm-hmm. which you already talked about is, is kind of like a, a, a weird point. But then they like love Helen. So it's like, is she going to yeah. come back as their like protector? Who knows? Hmm. That's true. That's a good point. I didn't even think about that. We don't know because that is not where the second <laughs> movie goes. Yeah. Can't even just come strolling back in. So, yeah. You are not content with the stories. So I was obliged to come. We've talked about the plot and the story and the lore and all of, you know, all the smart, intentional parts of this film. But now let's get into the gory details. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What is your favorite kill from Candyman? See, I was like torn on this, honestly, because... um, at first, after having seen the movie and knowing I had to pick like a favorite kill, I was like, I almost want to give it to Bernadette because um, seeing her body after the death was really jarring and they made her skin very like pale and blue. Mm -hmm. And she was somebody who was like very warm and like kind of a support for Helen. And so it was like, it kind of was a bit of a gut punch, but then I was like, but they didn't show the kill. So that kind of makes it a little bit of a bummer, I guess. Um, So I guess like I'd have to give it to like, I think Dr. Burr is um, when she, when she calls on, um, a candy man to kind of help her out yes. when she's in the psych ward and yes. he just comes up because he like he guts him with the hook in the back but then he does this awesome like backwards fly out the window <laughs> yes. that is amazing which again kind of hints at this like kind of Dracula thing where he just like flies out the window um, I think that was the most entertaining for me yeah <laughs> Yeah. Well, definitely Bernadette, like hers is really, I think, emotional. 
final two because even though Helen appears to be off her rocker, Bernadette is like coming to check on her and she's bringing her flowers and, you know, she just loves her friend and she's worried about her friend. And so even Helen's like, no, no, like don't come in or whatever. Run away. Yeah. And then she gets it. It's like, oh man, like she really didn't deserve it. She really didn't deserve it. And just on top of that, that Helen gets blamed for it again. Oh, it's like, I know. oh man. <laughs> I know. Poor Helen. But um my favorite is I guess it's not it's not technically it's not technically a kill. Yeah. I mean, I love all the candyman kills, but my favorite, I guess we'll call it a scene of carnage, is uh-huh. when Helen wakes up after Candyman has just like taken her out of the parking garage. When she wakes mm. up in the bathroom, she's covered in blood, mm. and Anne Marie is like screaming in the background. And we find that the dog has been like beheaded. Oh, and it's man. just chaos. It's just <laughs> chaos. And yeah. you're like, you're like, you're like Helen. You're like, where am I? Why is there blood? Why is the dog dead? Like, it's all yeah. just crazy. And then when she has that like meat cleaver fight. With mm-hmm. with Anne Marie, it's just it's it's just insane, and that is the scene that sticks out the most to me. You're right too, because that's another thing that Candyman does. Because at the time too, especially me, it's been a couple of years since I'd seen this, and I was like, wait, I had forgotten what happened to the baby. And you're right, you get thrown into the scene, and it's kind of like a panic. You're like with Helen, you're like, oh man, what's going on? And and at first, like, you don't know what happened to the baby. So I forgot. And I was like, oh, the baby's dead, too. And I was like, man, what a brutal scene. Because in horror, you don't typically touch dogs or babies unless you're really going for shock value. Like, if yep. you're really and you have to toe the line because then people like will turn on you because people don't like well, are fine watching adults get murdered. But when you kill dogs and babies, you're like, whoa, no, hang on there. OK. <laughs> yeah. So this scene, particularly. <laughs> The dog is beheaded, blood everywhere. And then the woman is screaming for her baby. So you're like, oh, God, what happened to the baby? And it's, yeah, it's a very stressful, like, oh, man. So, yeah, that's a great scene. Yeah, I I specifically remember that was the scene when I was a kid that I was like, oh, this is I'm in over my head. I don't know. I don't know what this is. And then even afterward, when Helen is like in the police station and they're like making her take her clothes off and stuff. Mm. And she's, she's just covered like covered in the blood. And she's upset and she doesn't know where she is. And she just like she keeps asking if she can like Oof. call her husband. It's just the whole thing is just very powerful, mm. let's say. Yeah, that yeah. is. And and for a movie, because it's weird, because even picking like favorite kills, I was kind of tracking along with this movie. There's not actually that many kills in this movie. But because of scenes like that, where she, she's covered in blood and she's like weeping and she is confused and she's having to undress in the police station. Scenes like that on top of the scene where like, the bee, like kiss scene where there's bees in his mouth and coming yeah. out of his chest like nobody okay nobody's actually dying there but those are iconic very Mm. powerful Mm -hmm. horror scenes that like give this movie a ton of weight um even though nobody's actually dying um in those scenes i always appreciate when a film has gore that's also like artful and like beautiful Mm-hmm. And how those two marry together. And I think Candyman is one of those movies where like just the way they do it is is uh, it's so well put together. It's almost like, you know, 
they're like putting together a painting or something. And so it's, yeah. it's, it's horrible, but it's also like pretty to look at, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like the bees, like the bees in the chest and the mouth and all that. Like, it's very like, but you're looking at it and it's like, oh, but this is also like really beautiful. Yeah. And also knowing kind of the art that went into that, like just the makeup artist had to build this mouthpiece where he was able to keep bees in his mouth. So they did it. That was a practical effect. And you have to be like mesmerized by it because you're like, oh my God, those bees are in his mouth. How are they doing that? It looks amazing, but grotesque at the same time. So yeah, yeah. absolutely agree. You're like, you have to respect the art form because you're like, oh my, that's really happening. And you're like, how? How did they do that? And it's just, it is even just in a practical sense. It's like, man, those are some great effects. Yeah, for sure. What are your overall thoughts on Candyman? And do you have anything else that you want to add? I really, I really liked watching the movie again this time. Like I said, I've always just carried around a positive idea of Candyman and I had forgot some of the finer details. Um, I enjoyed it again this time. Maybe this might even be like the height of my enjoyment because um, I was like really paying attention and trying to pull things out for our discussion. And I was like, this really is very, very interesting movie. Um, I could see why people would be frustrated. I could see um, where some of the critiques come from. But for me, it was almost just like this beautiful something that could have easily been a mess, but it's not a mess. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, the tightrope was like the best analogy I could come up with because I was walking along following this narrative with these people who are giving it to me. And every time I would feel like, man, they're walking on some shaky ground, but it never lost me. Like mm -hmm. I was, I like I carried on until the end. And um, while I do think that maybe it has, it's a little dated in some aspects. Um, I think that this holds up really well. And, but at the same time is like, is perfect for a modern like retelling. So I am like so excited for, for this new one to come out, having watched this again. Um, and really my biggest like critiques are just like, it's kind of dated some of like the race issues, I guess that I brought up that it never occurred to me before, but hearing people discuss, I was like, Oh yeah, that, I like never considered it in that way. But I, I wouldn't change the things that people, don't like about it. I don't think I would change because I think it would make this less special. I like this crazy hodgepodge monster. I like that it's not played like a, a typical regular, like straightforward slasher. Um, I like how special and unique it is. Awesome. Yeah. I feel much the same. Like, um, like I said before, the the plot, you know, doesn't like quite make sense. And like mm -hmm. I said, upon my first viewing as a kid, like I was, I was super confused. But I have to say that I actually think that's a kind of a strength as well. I think the disorientation of like time and place, and like I said, the imagery all kind of reminds me of Nightmare on Elm Street. And like, I really don't know if I would want those kind of like rough edges to be polished off. Um, yeah. And I don't like 100% love the end with Helen coming back as like the mirror ghost, but it's also really fun. Like she looks really cool and like her hair is her hair. She looks like the bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, now she, that you mentioned does. It, she does. Yeah, yeah. Um, but apparently point. there were like several alternate endings and some of them were a little more subtle 
but that's the one they ended up going with. I'm sure it was a studio note, but like I can live with it. I'm fine with it. But, um, but I just think that like the casting, the art direction, the score, the special effects are all just fantastic. Um, and I think, like you said, all those things kind of like combine together, um, make Candyman really special and certainly uh, a standout in 90s horror because it wasn't yeah. a great decade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't at me. <laughs> Don't at me. Yeah. Oh, and honestly, in the slasher genre, too, because he like he, Candyman it is a slasher movie, but it does deviate from the norm. Um, mm. And it is. It's just it's it's just a little more special than most. Yeah. Yeah. So what elements from this original franchise do you hope that they'll carry over into the new one? I like the ethereal kind of feeling when he's around. Now, they don't have Mm -hmm. to do that all the time, but his voice and even like that dream kind of logic where you feel hypnotized. um, I like that. Um, and I like the incorporation of like the street art, like the graffiti with it. When she comes through his mouth, that that image oh, is fantastic. So, cool. so I hope they are able to use that still as a way to say like, because he was an artist in his, when, you know, I, I like that they like bring it into kind of like the modern storytelling, like, Oh, this is how we tell stories with our, our, our art now. <laughs> um, I hope they kind of keep that going with it as well, because it, I think it could really lend to some pretty like special imagery. Um, so those would be the two biggest ones I hope they keep. How about you? Um, I think the same stuff I've been harping on over and over, just the the visuals and like the spectacle and then mm. just the general kind of like overall weirdness, like mm-hmm. those those two things um, for sure. And it, it yeah. looks like I mean, it's kind of hard to tell what's going on in the trailers, but it almost seems like the protagonist is maybe going to be sort of like overtaken by like the spirit of Candyman, but he is an artist. The protagonist is an artist. Okay. So I feel like they are going to keep both the visual stuff and the weirdness. I hope. Mm -hmm. So you said you have not seen the other. I haven't, but I will probably like follow along with, I know like the second one is set in new Orleans, right? Is that correct? Yes, it is. Okay, so that's pretty exciting. So I feel like, um, especially following off this movie, I'm kind of like on a Candyman high. Um, and we're moving into, you know, it's spooky season. So, um, so I, you know, I'm ready to go. Um, so I'll probably definitely like do two to follow along. And um, we'll see about three. I haven't heard great things about three, but I also want to yeah. listen to you guys talk about it. So I'm like, well, hmm. <laughs> I actually um, had not. Well, I still haven't seen three. <laughs> oh, OK. So I got to right. catch up before we get there. But um, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, I'm interested to see what three holds because it came out in 99. So, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So 11 years since the last entry kind of killed the franchise for a while, I guess. Huh? Uh (laughs) So before we go, what do you have going on? What have you, what have you got to plug? 
Um, well, if you, you know, if the listeners want to hear some more spooky goodness, of course, I am one of the three hosts from the Straight Chilling Podcast. So we do weekly horror movie reviews. And I also pretty much handle most of the bonus content on our YouTube page. So if you like horror video games, I do video game reviews and also like top five lists. So um, like top five found footage horror. I've done like underrated slashers, things like that. Um, I try to do those like once a month. And um, so, yeah, I've been going through some horror series, too, um, to kind of cover for the cast for our Patreon, um, like subscribers and stuff like that. So we we try to cover a lot of the realms of horror. I don't have the time to do books. So I always kind of like when you're like doing your readings and stuff, I kind of always come back to you. That is one aspect. But other than that, we cover the horror realm pretty, pretty good. So if you want some more spooky stuff, you can check out the straight chilling podcast i also i live in uh, seoul south korea and i also do my own um like travel videos so if you'd like to check that out i do a lot of tours around seoul i also maybe do like some korean food sometimes and just just kind of like my general life here and um you can find me on youtube at justin abroad and i try to do weekly videos there sometimes two a week and um, I also post pictures on Instagram and stuff too. So yeah, I really enjoy uh, following your travels on Instagram. I, I feel like <laughs> I'd never know what I'm going to see. Like uh, yeah. my personal favorite was the raccoon cafe. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've been doing, I've been trying to start a series on the cafes on the YouTube here because they are, they're like some wacky ones. Last week I went to a poop themed cafe <laughs> and I've been to a raccoon one. They have like, so like there's, a Harry Potter cafe I've been to too, but I'm trying to go to kind of all the wacky themed cafes because there are actually quite, quite a bit. So, um, that is like a kind of a series I'm trying to follow through with until I feel like I've knocked out all the crazy ones, but yeah, thanks. Yeah. Well, and if you ever come back to the U S like, you don't, you're not going to have that here. So you might as well get all, all the wackiness <laughs> yeah, in while you can. Exactly. Yep. Go to all the raccoon cafes I can. <laughs> <laughs> There's more than one surprisingly. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much uh, for being on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was a great discussion and I really enjoyed like kind of being asked to watch Candyman again. I'm really glad I watched it um, this year. It's heading into spooky season. Yes. So yeah, <laughs> definitely uh, watch the other two and, and let me know what you think. I'd be interested to know. And uh, hopefully we can all talk together when the new Candyman finally comes out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, actually, that's a great idea. All right, Justin. Well, thanks again for coming on and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Have a good one. Bye. All right. Bye. Hello, friends. Welcome back to our Candyman series. And today we are talking about the second installment in the franchise, Candyman Farewell to the Flesh, which was released in 1995. And I am very happy to welcome my second guest from the Straight Chilling Podcast, Bob. Hey, Nicole. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited to talk about some candy mang with you. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if you guys listen to Straight Chilling, you know, Bob is like, I don't know, the the main host, the lead host. Do you have like a, a title? <laughs> no, not really. We're all just hosts. We all just yeah. host the thing. You, you know? like you like uh, heard 
heard, I the, heard squirrels, the cats. <laughs> man- manage <laughs> yeah. the circus. Yeah. And uh, and Bob also has quite a extensive physical media collection that he is endlessly berated about. True. Yeah. I don't I, I definitely don't brag about it. I have been taken down a notch or two several times. So <laughs> it is what it is. Hey, there's a crowd out there, though. Like yeah. your people are out there. It's true. It's true. We are few, but we are strong. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about Candyman Farewell to the Flesh. When did you first see this movie? The first time I saw this one was probably about three years ago. Um, I, speaking of physical media, I picked up a copy on Blu-ray. It was put out by uh, Scream Factory. And I was just curious because I'd never seen it before. Um, and, you know, I threw it in and I was pleasantly surprised. Um, you know, I'll keep all of my thoughts kind of... <laughs> To myself for now, but um, it was a it was a pleasant first watch for me, and um, I do recommend picking that disc up. It's got some pretty cool bonus features on it. It is it just went out of print like I think last month, so it might be kind of hard to find. But if you can find it, I recommend picking it up. Oh, I love a good bonus feature, also. Yes. So that yeah. that might sell me on it. Yeah, there's a there's about. I think a 30 minute interview with Tony Todd on there. That's really cool. He talks a lot about uh, his specific influence on this movie. And it, I like what he had to say. I, I can mention a little bit as we continue. Yeah, I'll definitely, uh, definitely want you to, to dig into some of that here in a little sure. bit. Um, so as you may recall from last episode, um, I actually saw Farewell to the Flesh first before I saw the regular Candyman. Um, I saw a lot of this kind of stuff when I was a kid, and I think that uh, Farewell to the Flesh is just what was at my local video store. And um, I really liked it. I was, like, tripped out by it. I think it was, like, unlike anything I had really seen before. I mean, I was used to slashers, um, but Candyman, of course, is, like, very different. Um, And I was also sort of fascinated because it was set in New Orleans, and I've always had a very particular affinity for that city. Um, And then just like the imagery and the spectacle, it was great and stuck with me. Um, And it felt scary to me in a different way. And I'm I'm pretty sure I had a couple of nightmares (laughs) due to it. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's, I think it's kind of cool that you saw this movie first, because in a way like chronologically this is like this is sort of Candyman going back home right going back to where he came from yeah and I think it almost kind of makes sense to watch this one first in a way so that's pretty cool yeah Um, like it doesn't um it doesn't really matter as far as like timeline goes you know yeah not so much um I also have a an affinity to New Orleans so whenever like as soon as you put it on and you realize like oh it's Mardi Gras and we're in New Orleans right now I was locked and loaded and I was like sweet so let's talk about New Orleans a little bit like what is okay. your what's your history with New Orleans like when did you first go like why do you love it uh, I have family in Mississippi and Louisiana and um, they're roughly 45 minutes outside of New Orleans. And I think the first time I went, I was probably like 10 or so. Mm-hmm. And um, pretty much anytime we'd go visit family, we'd drive into New Orleans and spend at least a day there. And I made several trips back, uh, you know, after ha- having grown up just with friends, you know, we'd make random weekend road trips and hang out in the French Quarter and watch music and, you know, just take in the culture because it's such a 
fantastic city uh you know musically uh the the food is incredible the history is incredible there's it's got a lot going on and it, and it's a uh, it's it's a tiny quaint little place and i just kind of i love the vibe of it yeah it's, it's a special city I'm much the same. Um, mm. I went the first time when I was a kid. I think I was, yeah, maybe eight or nine. Uh, we were somewhere else and New Orleans was close and my parents had never been. And so they were like, hey, let's swing through New Orleans. Um, mm. And I uh, didn't go back until... I can't remember exactly when I went back again. I think maybe a high school field trip, but it uh, it, it is a special city. It just has, um, it doesn't feel like any other city yeah. in, in America that I've ever been to. And um, I uh, I think the food in particular, but also just the, the people. Um, I have some good friends who are from there. And so much of my time in New Orleans has been spent in people's houses with people Mm -hmm. who are from there. And so I kind of call it my second home. And I've always felt uh, a little bit more like a native than a tourist when I go. And uh, and so even um, but like I said, even before I'd ever been, when I saw this movie, I've just always kind of, you know, liked the vibe of New Orleans and then actually spending time there. I, you know, I have not not ever been disappointed. So people, you know, kind of give it a bad rap because they're like, oh, it's kind of rough and crime and this and that. And I'm like, it is. But there's just a certain quality that it's just unlike anywhere else. Yeah, you just roll with it. It's also, you know, for people like us, it's a very spooky city, too. It's super old. It's allegedly very haunted. It's got the voodoo aspect. Vampires. Yeah, there's a lot going on. A lot of really cool stuff going on. Yeah, for sure. Man, flesh and blood? I'm afraid not. But he lives in the mirror. You say his name five times, he's supposed to come. That's how he gets you. You guys don't really believe that, do you? There's no such thing as a candy man. Those three big ones were John Doe's. What if it's true? What if the candy man does exist? Did you see that night? Ray's body was torn apart by something powerful. And it wasn't your brother. I'm gonna find out what happens. No! No! There are no monsters. You brought me here. And only God can save us. The terror in the mirror returns. Our journey begins. To avenge his name. Reveal his past. And fulfill his destiny. What do you want from me? Death is a return, you know. In a motion picture that ends what the first one barely started. Candyman. Farewell to the flesh. Before we get uh, too deep into our discussion of Candyman and maybe how New Orleans relates, um, let's talk a little bit about the history and synopsis. So, Bob, you got a synopsis for us? 
I do. Yeah, I typed one up. I will try and be somewhat brief. Here we go. Uh, this movie sort of opens up with this uh, scholar from Cambridge. His name is Purcell, and he's giving a lecture on a book that he just wrote about Candyman. He's inside of a small bookstore in New Orleans, and um, he's uh, he's basically promoting this book. Uh, after he finishes his lecture, he goes outside, and he's confronted by a local by the, uh, the name of Ethan Tarrant. Ethan says that his father reached out to Purcell requesting assistance with Candyman at one point. And Purcell told him to just look in the mirror, say the name five times, because it's just a legend. You know, nothing bad's going to happen. And turns out Ethan's father was then killed by Candyman, allegedly. And Ethan's pretty upset about it. Uh, later on, Purcell ends up getting killed by Candyman in a bar bathroom, uh, which then causes Ethan to be arrested on suspicion of the murder uh, due to their previous confrontation. Um, after that, we meet our main character, finally, Annie Tarrant, who is Ethan's sister. Uh, she becomes curious about her father and brother's obsession with the Candyman legend. Uh, Annie and her husband uh, eventually investigate the old family house. Um, turns out her father was always drawn to the house, even after they left it and it was the place that he was killed at uh, they sneak into the house and they find a huge Candyman mural uh, Annie also mentions that there's like an old slaves quarters out back uh, that she was never allowed to enter as a child when they lived there uh, Candyman eventually appears to Annie and says they have a journey to take uh, Ethan then tells Annie that their father found a way to kill Candyman uh, there's an old man in the quarter by the name of Tibidu who is good friends with their father, and he might be able to offer some more information about how to kill Candyman. So Andy eventually visits Tibidu, and he tells her that uh, Candyman was born in New Orleans. Her father also hypothesized that if you smash Candyman's lover's mirror, or Caroline's mirror, it would then destroy Candyman. Uh, Candyman shows up, tells Annie that she's pregnant kills Tibidu. Uh, through a lot more detective work, Annie then finds out that Candyman and Caroline had a child by the name of Isabel. Uh, Isabel is Annie's great-grandmother, which then would make Candyman her great-great-grandfather. Annie's mother kept all of this family history hidden from her and her brother. Uh, Candyman then kills Annie's mom and Ethan. The movie climaxes ultimately back at the old family plantation house where Annie finds Caroline's mirror in the slave quarters. She smashes it and destroys Candyman. Annie and her new little girl continue on with their happy lives. And that's it. Ooh, that was pretty, uh, I feel like for all the things going on, that was pretty adept synopsis. Yeah, there's a lot happening in this movie. I skipped over some stuff for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I... I could not find a ton about um, like the production of this movie. Mm -hmm. um, I did find one interesting tidbit. Um, according to Virginia Madsen, who played Helen in the original, she said that Bernard Rose, who is the director of the original Candyman, had a different concept in mind. And... Her quote is, they originally wanted us to do Candyman 2, but they didn't like Bernie's idea for the sequel. They made the Candyman into a slave, which was terrible because the Candyman was educated and raised as a free mm -hmm. man. Bernie wanted to make him like an African-American Dracula, which I think was so appealing to the African-American community because they finally had their own Dracula. The Candyman was a poet and smart. He wasn't really a monster. He was sort of that classical figure. The sequel that Bernie wanted to make was a prequel where you would see the Candyman and Helen fall in love. It was turned down because the studio didn't want to do an interracial love story. 
So that's very different. That is. Yeah, man, there's there's kind of a lot to unpack there. They do in this movie kind of contradict the original movie because they uh, the dude at the very beginning of the movie, Purcell, does say, I think Purcell says it, that Candyman was born of slaves and he became a slave, which, you know, like you said, he that wasn't the case in the original movie. His dad invented some sort of like machine that makes shoes or something and they were very yeah. well educated and right i didn't really like that they contradicted that seemingly for no reason i don't really i don't even know what that had to do with this yeah. movie but well i think um it really seems like they wanted to go to new orleans i yeah. think that somebody probably in a studio somewhere was like "Ooh, what if we went to new orleans okay well he's black so okay let's give him a slave yeah. story <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're probably right. There was some sort of like huge, you know, tax cut happening in New Orleans at the time yeah. of the production or something like, okay, well just ride it in New Orleans and you can shoot it. That's fine. Uh, yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. So was there anything uh, in the, the special features on your Blu-ray that like shed any light onto how this got made or, you know, how it came together? Even I saw IMDB credited Clive Barker mm -hmm. as a writer, but I wasn't sure if that was, did he actually come up with like this story or are they just crediting him for the, you know, original material? Yeah. The, the little bit that was on the disc, they didn't really mention much ab about Clive. They didn't really say he came to set at all. I know he definitely did for the original movie. I, I, I gather that he did much care for this sequel because um, he didn't show up apparently. Uh, I, I know that uh, Tony Todd did say um, the flashback sequence that we get in this movie where it actually shows his hand being removed and, and this big swarm of bees sort of descending upon him and you know all the horrors like that was uh, Tony Todd. He insisted that they do that I guess to, to provide some sort of uh, reality for Candyman and, and ground the character. Cause like you said, he's not really a monster. He's more like, I mean, you relate to him. You're sort of rooting for him in a way because mm -hmm. all, all these terrible things happened to him. His, his family, his future was ripped from him. Um, his right hand, you know, he was an artist. His right hand was removed. Like they really kind of took everything from him and you, you want him to, to, exact his revenge in a way so you sort of relate to him much the way you would like the classic universal monsters or something like that yeah he is a he's a poet he's a smooth talker he's he's a lot of he's a lot of things but he's not so much a monster my only sin was to love caroline and to give her a daughter they took everything from me annie My child, my life. This might be a good time for us to segue into the the lore of this yeah, movie, sure. um, because you mentioning. Putting, putting that whole scene in where he becomes Candyman, I did think it was really interesting that they recapped it. And it's, I mean, very similar from what they did in the first film. And I assumed that it was like, okay, well, for people who haven't seen Candyman, maybe we need to put this in here so they understand. Yeah. Um, and like you said, they change 
they changed some things. Um, like, of course, it's the same thing with like the mob cutting off his hand and putting a hook. The bees and the honey are all still there. Um, but they add that his lover, Caroline, was actually pregnant with his child, which I do mm-hmm. not think is said in the original. Um, and then they also give the mob all this really specific dialogue. Like there's a little boy that yells, Candyman, Candyman. Yeah. There's a woman that's like, sweets to the sweet. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then the whole thing with the mirror is probably, you know, the most specific thing because we don't mm-hmm. know why in the first movie, like why he comes through the mirror, um, which I, I always kind of enjoyed that ambiguity because like as a culture we understand that whole mirror ghost thing um, but the fact that like they held the mirror and like his soul went in the mirror like you know that's definitely we're adding we're adding some layers adding there yeah. yes so but, how do you feel about the adding of the layers <laughs> I I like some of it I don't like some of it it's it seems as though they they went to great lengths to explain every tiny thing. Um, I like the mirror aspect quite a bit because that does explain why you need to specifically look in a mirror when you say his name to conjure him because he dwells within the mirror. I think that's pretty cool. But like the, you know, the sweets to the sweet and the little kid saying Candyman right as he's being killed is just kind of ridiculous. Like how would those things even continue on to today? Like it just doesn't even really make sense how those things would translate. Um, you know, so it's a little unnecessary. I do like that uh, we get a name for Candyman, though, which I don't believe they ever say that in the original, but his name is yes. Daniel Robital. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that because, again, that just sort of makes him more human, more real. And, uh, you know, you relate to him ultimately. So yeah. that's pretty cool. It's sort of half and half for me, I think. How do yeah. you feel about all that stuff? I um, I do like that they give him the name. The The mirror to me is a little much um i think that possibly if they would have introduced it or executed it in a little bit of a different way um i would have felt better about it other than just like caroline was there and it was her mirror and Mm -hmm. i believe like the effects in that scene are pretty touchy um, which is part of it i'm pretty sure there's like a little lightning effect or something like on the (laughs) mirror when he dies um but one thing I do appreciate about that scene is that it is more grisly than the mob scene in the first one. And I think that's part of what really stuck with me, especially when I was a kid. I was like, mm-hmm. I've never seen anything like this before. Like, you know, this is this is crazy. But um, I also I think this is a good time to talk a little bit more about New Orleans um, because I had a little bit of a disconnect with like Chicago and New Orleans and mm-hmm. they're so very different and Cabrini Green and the French Quarter and Mardi Gras and all that. I mean, it's just so different. Now, I feel like Candyman does kind of seamlessly fit into the world and the vibe and the grit of New Orleans. He feels very natural in that setting. Um, but I also I'm not sure like are they saying because they said he was born in New Orleans. Right. It's his birthplace. But what I'm not sure that they specify, and you'll have to help me here if if you realize this and I didn't, um, is was he like born in New Orleans and then he moved to Chicago and that's where he got killed? Or are they saying, no, this all happened. He was born here. He was killed here. The 
they don't specifically say where he was killed in the sequel, but in the original, they do say that specifically he was killed where Cabrini Green is right. currently. Right. So they didn't contradict that. So I guess we're to believe that he was born in New Orleans and then was he either moved or was sold depending on whether or not he was a slave, I don't know, to someone in Chicago or he just moved to a nice place in Chicago and then got killed in Chicago. Right. Uh, so I guess he started haunting Chicago specifically and then was conjured back to New Orleans because that's where he's from. And, you know, his family started doing some research. And Yeah, after the Helen thing didn't work out, he's like, you know what? I think I'm going to go back and be with some more of my family in a different place. <laughs> Right. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's it's interesting to me, too, that the family starts doing all of this research in New Orleans, because if if in fact he he just left New Orleans and went to Chicago, was killed in Chicago and then started haunting people in Chicago and they're like four or five generations removed from him. Like, how would they ever know that this Candyman legend is tied to this very distant relative of theirs? I want like what started, uh, you know, the dad in this movie who's who dies before we actually come to the movie. What kicked him off? Like, what what made him start researching family history and connecting the Candyman legend to his family history? Like, what what did that? That would be interesting, especially since it's his wife's family, not mm -hmm. his. So, yeah, that is an interesting. I'm sure if they went to the links to explain it, it would be real convoluted. But that is Probably. an interesting that's an interesting question, you know, yeah. for sure. Um, how did you feel about just like the treatment of New Orleans and New Orleans culture and like this being on Mardi Gras and how they folded that all in? Like, what were your thoughts yeah. about that? I, I've never been to Mardi Gras and that's uh, somewhat intentional. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it just, it seems like a lot, uh, very indulgent. And New Orleans in general is a very indulgent town. Uh, Mardi Gras is just that times 10, I guess, from what I've been told. Uh, so it doesn't paint a picture of a city. I would imagine if you're watching this for the first time and you've, you've never seen New Orleans before in person, it probably doesn't paint a picture of a city that's like <laughs> looks too enjoyable. You know, all these people partying in the street, uh, drinking, you know, having sex in the middle of the street, just various uh, lewd acts happening. But I guess it's somewhat uh, true to reality. I think it does paint like a like a nice background for this movie being called farewell to the flesh mm. in that you know Candyman is consistently beckoning for people to leave their bodies and come join him and, and you know we have this sort of uh, rough uh, background of, of people <laughs> engaging in sins of the flesh and it's like you know what leaving your body doesn't look like that bad of a, an idea given what's happening around our main story here so I think it makes sense in a way but I don't know. How do you feel about it? I, in general, I kind of felt like uh, it was like a pretty stereotypical, like yeah. um, probably like first five minutes into the movie, somebody's talking about going somewhere to like have some good gumbo. And yeah. uh, like the mom has a ridiculous Southern accent that does not sound like a native <laughs> New Orleanian. Um, but, you know, I mean, that stuff aside, I mean, it's a Hollywood interpretation of New Orleans. So I kind of had to like put that to one side and sort of be like, most people would never bat an eye at this and think like yeah. it's ridiculous. Um, I have been to Mardi Gras. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yes. Um, it was my first ever like 
parade or anything was was during Mardi Gras, and I was there again with like locals, local family, um, and. It's it. The funny thing is, there is a version of Mardi Gras that's very like decadent and indulgent and over the top. Um, but people in New Orleans are big, big, big on family. And like Mardi Gras is something you do for like a week or two. Like you get off work and your whole family does it together. So it's not like a bunch of people getting naked. It's like you and like your kids and like your family and you're eating donuts and you're having daiquiris and you've got Popeye's chicken. Um, and it's a very for the most part just like fun like fairly wholesome atmosphere now there are certain parades in certain neighborhoods that are known to be like more you know adults um and also the locals that i knew now this certainly don't speak for everyone in new orleans but the locals that i knew like amateurs go to the french quarter for mardi gras like (laughs) Or Bourbon Street. Let's put it that way. I got you. Like, you don't go to a Bourbon Street parade if you're, like, from New Orleans, you know? Um, especially if you've, like, if you're a little older and more mature. Like, they yeah. just kind of laugh that off. Like, that's just not something you do. Um, so I found that all fascinating. My favorite, and, the, you know, we're rabbit trailing a little bit, but if anybody else anybody else is out, out there is interested in New Orleans, maybe they'll find this helpful. I think the best time to go is St. Patrick's Day. Okay. Because you still get the parades. Um, There are some crowds, but it's not nearly like Mardi Gras crowds. And so you go down to the Irish Channel for St. Patty's Day parades, and it's just like, it's an amazing time. Um, But yeah, so just sort of the the stereotypical, some of the stereotypical depictions to me like felt a little off. But again, for most people, that's not going to be a problem. (laughs) What did you think about the Kingfish radio DJ guy? You know, I like the concept. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure I loved the execution. Again, it had just a, a little more cheese than I, w- I would have liked. Um, yeah. But I did kind of like just sort of the overall kind of like taking the temperature of the city it was kind of neat. I agree. You? Yeah. The the accent is just, it's it's a little goofy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it doesn't quite land, but the idea is there. And I like the idea for sure. Painting a... a portrait of a city sort of as we're going down this crazy horror show of Candyman and all this. Yeah. So let's see here. Is there anything else about kind of the lore and the setting that you wanted to talk about? Um, I guess the only, the only other thing that comes to mind is this movie sim- does the same thing that the original movie does in, in that Candyman is almost searching for like a bride, so to speak, or, you know, his family. And I like that it sort of repeats itself in, in the sequel because it, it then just further solidifies that he's trying to regain what was taken from him and, you know, makes him more human. And, of course, uh, reminds me of, you know, Frankenstein or Dracula, so to speak, because, you know, they're also, you know, Brad of Frankenstein, obviously. And then <laughs> Dracula at some point just has like a whole harem of wives. And it just it harkens back to those Universal Monster movies or the Hammer, Hammer Monster movies. Uh, as well. Um, I like that. I like that this just sort of solidifies him as being like more of a classic uh, creature. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely like that. I mean, the, the first one is really, 
the most prominent for this, but I think kind of the whole series has that sort of gothic through line, Mm -hmm. which I think is kind of probably what makes it maybe stand out among slasher films is that it's, it's, it's modern in some sensibilities, but then you've got that kind of undercurrent of like just classic, yeah, classic monster vibes. Yeah. Yeah. You are not content with the stories, so I was obliged to come. So speaking of being a horrific monster, <laughs> what is your favorite kill from the movie? Um, I got to go with the uh, Tibidu kill. Who's uh, He's the guy who's got like a snow cone shop in the French yes. Quarter. <laughs> and uh, Annie rolls up there to get some information from him. And, you know, he kind of closes the shop down and invites her in. He's got this secret hidden passageway and he like opens the door up and there's uh he's got all these antiques and paintings and you know treasures i guess he's like somewhat of an art dealer and he he sells his stuff on the black market and uh he's uh he tells annie about you know the mirror and potentially how she can kill Candyman, and the Candyman busts in uh just launches thousands of bees at Tibidu's face and then, you know, throws him through the wall and his head comes bursting through the wall. And then we see his face after it's all stung up and it just, it's just mauled and pretty horrific looking. I, I think that's my favorite kill. The bee kill. Yes. <laughs> I also love, um, it's a very dramatic moment when he like unveils the painting yeah. of Caroline and you're like, oh, it's the painting. Wow. It's like the inciting incident. Like, yeah. I, I loved that reveal. I really thought that was cool. Um, my favorite kill is the first one when Professor Purcell gets it. <laughs> yeah. Because it's just a really good classic Candyman kill. I mean, we get the hook, we get the bathroom, like the lights are kind of flickering, you know. And also, I like that it ties over from the first film because he was he's the first one who told us about Candyman. So here he is again. Um, and I was happy to see him get it because he was like really dismissive of Helen in Candyman. Mm-hmm. He was like picking picking at her and trying to make her feel stupid. <laughs> and now he's clearly like profiting off of the Candyman tragedy and off of Helen's tragedy. So visually it was great. Got me in the mood for where this movie was going and also he just really deserved it. He did. Yeah. He I really think did. of it quite like that. He's <laughs> yeah, he's a piece of work in the original for sure and he finally gets what's coming to him. Yeah. Solid kill. I mean, he's an interesting character. He has kind of an interesting voice an interesting look so like i'm glad he's in there but he's one of those that you're glad to see him get it yeah for sure (laughs) um so on another vein in the same arena were there any other um like particular effects that you liked or disliked um yeah i think most notably um whenever they cut his hand off in the flashback, it's, Mm -hmm. it's extremely realistic. I think they did a really good job with that. Uh, but the swarm of bees that they have soon after descend upon him are definitely computer generated and look pretty rough. There's also another scene. I can't remember exactly when this takes place in the movie. It might be in Tibidu's little hut. 
Um, but there's a scene where there are bees coming like out of the side of Candyman's face. It looks like they're flying out of his face and it's horrifying. Those bees are real too. They, they're, they're pretty scary. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, uh, there were definitely some cool practical effects, but I think the diff, one of the main difference between Candyman and Farewell to the Flesh is that I think the effects in the first one were like pretty spot on and hold up now and there were definitely some questionable cg choices in this yeah. one um most notably at the end when she breaks the mirror and yeah. then Candyman like turns into glass and breaks like glass which again is a really cool concept just the execution and and it's a little bit literal so like that to me i was like whoa okay yeah, like we get it. Mirrors, it's a theme. We get it. <laughs> yeah, like what's, woo, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a little rough. Yeah. Just have them burst into bees, you know? It, oh, now that would be cool. Yeah, maybe it would look a little better, maybe a little easier to do that. I don't know. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right, Bob, what are your overall thoughts? Candyman, farewell to the flesh. What are your thoughts? Overall thoughts. I think this is a really solid sequel to the original movie. Uh, it adds to the lore and the vast majority of what it adds, I think, builds the character in a good way. Um, I think it's got some decent kills. Uh, I obviously appreciate that it takes place in the city of New Orleans. And I think for the most part, um, what it pulls from New Orleans makes sense uh, thematically for this movie. Um, I actually didn't know until I saw this movie what Carnival actually meant, which is where they get Farewell to the Flesh or, or you know, Farewell to Meat, uh, which makes sense again thematically for the movie as Candyman's trying to get, um, you know, a potential lover or family member to leave their body behind and join him. Um, and also the movie does uh, climax ultimately on Ash Wednesday. Um, and, uh, Annie, our main character pretty much, uh, leaves, leaves us, uh, repenting for the sins of her family, so to speak, you know, her family went through great lengths to try and cover up, uh, the, the sordid history of their family's past regarding Candyman. And, um, Annie is flipping through, um, a, a picture book with her newborn kid. Well, not newborn. I guess she's like, probably a toddler, four or five years old, if I had to guess. Yeah. And, you know, she sees uh, pictures of her, you know, like great, great, great grandpa, uh, Daniel Robitaille. And, you know, she's, she's getting all the family history out there now in a, in a way that her mother and father definitely did not do for her. Um, so I think all of that thematically makes a lot of sense. Um, like I said, the Kingfish guy, a little goofy, but I like that he sort of uh, frames the movie in a way um, that, that keeps us grounded in the city as well. I think it was a good idea, just a little bit too goofy with the, 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 the New Orleans accents, just not quite there. Um, and also, like, like you said, Nicole, uh, how it starts off with Purcell, that guy... You don't particularly like him, but I think it's a great great way to start the movie off. That whole scene uh, where he's giving his lecture and he looks into like the little reflective dust jacket on his book and he says mm -hmm. Candyman five times. And then he gets the little actor to bust through his his projector screen with a, a hook. And it's it's goofy, but I I it adds a little bit of charm to the movie. And I really, really like that they open it up 
that way. And then of course he does die brutally and it's very satisfying. So um, yeah, overall, I really dig this movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, hopefully you didn't listen this far because we fully spoiled it. Um, but if you hadn't seen it and you're on the fence about it, I definitely recommend checking it out. I think it's a, it's a solid sequel for sure yeah my audience should know by now that stuff gets heavily spoiled every time (laughs) yeah so um i have very similar thoughts to yours i i'm probably a little bit rougher on it um i think though so again saw it when i was a child was really fascinated with it i did not see it again until i rewatched it just a few weeks ago Um, So those are very two, like two very different viewings through two very different sets of eyes. And um, I probably had a little bit of like rose colored glasses remembering it. And then when I watched it this time, I was like, ooh, like that was rougher than maybe I thought it was, you know, thought it was going to be. However, having sat with it and thought about it, thinking about it more and uh, then just doing a little homework, you know, reading about it and really thinking about it. I'm like, you know, I mean, I do think this is a better than usual slasher sequel. And um, I really do like the story. I think to take it into a completely different context, completely different story than we got the first time around, it works pretty well and like feels true to the character. Um, and it's it's pretty fun. And mm-hmm. if you can ignore, you know, some of the just 90s like effects that were pretty standard at the time, if you can just kind of ignore some of that, um, I think it becomes even a little more enjoyable. Um, I think that this particular story in different hands, perhaps more creative hands, um, would be even better because I feel like most of the problems I have with it are, are really more about execution than concept. Yeah. Um, so even though, you know, we're getting an imagining, a reimagining of, I assume, the original Candyman, it would kind of be cool to see um, what this vision would look like um, through different through a different interpretation. And I think it would be pretty easy to, to tie, to more closely tie together Candyman in this movie. I think with just a couple little things, you could kind of seamlessly bridge that gap. I think you could fix the whole thing where now he's going to be a slave where he wasn't before. Um, I think, you know, some of that stuff could kind of be polished. Uh, But yeah, overall, I think it's a pretty decent sequel and a pretty fun watch. And I think I will definitely revisit it again in the future. Yeah. Watch it on Mardi Gras. Good Mardi Gras horror movie. You know what? That's a great idea, actually, because I don't think there are a lot of Mardi Gras horror movies no i the only i know of two and the other one i've never seen uh this and mardi gras massacre that's all i got um hatchet adam hatchet. green's yeah. hatchet yeah it starts off on mardi gras okay it's yeah i knew i was definitely in new orleans i couldn't remember yeah. if uh if it was at mardi gras so that's you know do you do you like the hatchet series <laughs> i do way? i do i like them for what they are you know they're not gonna blow your mind in any way but you know they're fun dumb slasher movies yeah Yeah. i'm not a a huge fan of adam green's work but i think he's Mm -hmm. like a really cool like horror nerd and i just admire the fact that like he's out there doing it you know (laughs) yeah he's getting after it i i appreciate him quite a bit i know what you're saying like his work is a little maybe a little rough around the edges for sure but he's so enthusiastic and um you can't help but root for the guy you just I, i can't anyways so yeah Seems cool. 
So what elements from the original franchise, either the first film or the second film, what elements do you hope that you'll see represented in the new adaptation? I I hope that they do carry the uh, the flashback sequence through to the reimagining or sequel or whatever this really is going to be. Um, just to keep it grounded in, in reality, you know, as unpleasant as that whole sequence is, I think it adds a lot to the character. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in, in the sequel specifically, uh, what, what the Tarrant family essentially tries to do is they try to like whitewash their family's history. And that's, you know, a pretty unforgivable thing to do. So if they're going to take something from the sequel, I think that would probably add even more to the Candyman lore. Um, and I'm sure, you know, Jordan Peele producing it, I'm sure he could take all of these little elements, stitch them together and, and help make a really, really compelling story. So yep. I don't know. I hope they keep it grounded, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Same. Um, do you have anything you want to throw in about the other two films, the first one or the third one? Um, I have not finished watching the third one. I I started it just the other night, but I didn't. I did not quite get through it. Um, I don't know. I think the only other thing I guess I could probably add about the first one is I I I feel like a lot of the killings in the first one don't make a whole lot of sense with like who Candyman is. I mean, he does have to essentially kill people to make sure that people believe in him because that's the belief is what keeps him alive essentially. But it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that he's, he he kills like a few random people. Whereas in the sequel, the people that he kills, the killings just feel a little bit more uh, personal, I guess. Like there's more reason behind it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, killing Purcell, you know, Purcell is actually touring around the country, giving a book uh, talk and, and saying that Candyman is just, a legend. He's not real. You know, he's, he's, he's telling people not to believe in him. So it makes sense that he would kill him. It makes sense that he would kill Annie's mother and her brother because Annie's mother's basically lying about his existence entirely. And his brothers and, and Annie are trying to like find ways to kill Candyman. And it just all makes a little bit more sense to me, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely agree with that. I hadn't thought of that point, but yeah, you're kind of right. The There's de- definitely a very specific like you know, spree of carnage in this one. Yeah. It's a little less random, I guess, than the the original. All right. Well, before we go, this is your time to tell the people about all your things, Bob. Plug your stuff. All right. Um, yes, I am from the straight chilling podcast we're a weekly horror movie review show uh you can find us pretty much anywhere you find your podcast itunes spotify stitcher google play everywhere um you can also find us at straight chilling podcast.com that's chilling with a g by the way um you can find us at a straight chilling podcast on instagram uh we're on twitter we're on all the social media we're on facebook youtube uh just Search Straight Chilling Podcast anywhere and you will definitely find us. Awesome. What about your uh, Let's Get Physical? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we do have a, sp- a spinoff podcast. It's called Let's Get Physical Media. Uh, my friend Mikey and I, we basically just talk about Blu-rays, 
4Ks, DVDs, uh, you know, stuff that's coming out, stuff that just went out of print. And uh, it definitely has a horror genre focus. We talk about a little bit of other stuff too, um, but the vast majority of the stuff that we, we collect and discuss are horror movies. So you can find that anywhere you get your podcast as well. Let's get physical media. Awesome. So that's it, folks. We are now two thirds of the way through the Candyman franchise. And um, I have thoroughly enjoyed this journey so far. So be sure to tune in for the third and final installment coming soon. And uh, Bob, thanks again for being with me today. Thanks so much for having me, Nicole. It was great. All right. Talk to you soon. All righty. Bye. Hello friends, welcome back to the third and final installment in the Candyman series. We've been to Chicago, we've been to New Orleans, and today we're headed to LA to discuss 1999's Candyman Day of the Dead. And I am happy to welcome my final guest from the Straight Chilling podcast, Randy Gandy G. Landy. Ooh, best for last. Here he is. What's up? (laughs) (laughs) Not much. So uh, Randy and I have one big thing in common, and that is we are both uh, creative professionals. We're both graphic designers. That's true. And uh, you've been kind of just like hip hopping across the states. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) Hopscotching, (laughs) if you will. Yeah. um, So uh, as part of my my fiance's job she gets contracts all over the united states and i went freelance full-time for that and have been for over two years getting going on three years now just been sort of going to different uh parts of the u.s and then enjoying what i can right now not very much but enjoying what i can about the u.s uh different parts and you know that's yeah, it, we were really. like, uh, we were ahead of the curve, you know, we were like working from home in a dark office with Zoom calls oh. before it was cool. <laughs> That's right. Trend setting. All it took was a global pandemic to make yep. it reality. For Here we else. are. Here we are. <laughs> um, and so I was telling um, Justin, whenever he was on, you probably don't even know this, but whenever I listen to Straight Chilling, usually you are the one that I agree with the most as far as like opinions and stuff. I'll be thinking something and then you'll say it. So (laughs) I told him, I was like, it's going to be interesting to see how our discussion goes. And I'll be interested to see if you and I kind of have the same thoughts about this film. That's so funny. I I can't imagine that Justin would be in any hurry to validate uh, me as being (laughs) more on the ball than him. But here we are. So let's, uh, let's get into it then. When did you first see Candyman 3? Uh, this week in preparation for this podcast, <laughs> it was, it's, uh, this one was kind of like lost to time a little bit. It seems like, um, I remember seeing it on shelves at Blockbuster cause it was back in that era, but uh, beyond that, I was not truly all that aware of it or anything about it. Yeah, I'm pretty much the same. Um, of course, I've seen the first one a lot of times. Um, I'd seen the second one a couple of times and mm-hmm. just watched this one a few days ago. <laughs> yeah. So, and I don't, yeah, I'll, I also don't know like how I missed it. I guess it's because Candyman feels very like early 90s and mm-hmm. this came out of the late 90s. <laughs> well, my chair broke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. We're good. <laughs> I was going to say, do you need to take a moment? No, we're all set. <laughs> Sorry. That was, uh, that's just, that's just the kind of pizzazz I bring to the podcast. Setting the stage for this discussion. <laughs> the screen's most brutal killer is back for blood. They say he came back from the dead. 
his hand replaced by a bloody hook. And revenge never tasted so sweet. Believe. They say he called his name five times into a mirror and he appears. Candyman. And when he comes, he'll be the last thing you ever see. Candyman. Hate generates hate. Candyman. Evil breeds evil. Candyman. Be my victim. Candyman. Entertainment presents Tony Todd. Feel my pain. And Donna D'Errico. It was the Candyman. He's real. Candyman, Day of the Dead. Help me. Oh, all right. So let's go ahead and do a little history and synopsis recap. Randy, you got a synopsis for us. I sure do. Written by somebody uh, that's not me, which is you. So thank you for that. Here we go. On the eve of the Day of the Dead in Los Angeles, we meet Caroline McKeever, daughter of Annie Tarrant, the protagonist of the second film, and distant relative to Candyman. Caroline now owns the work of Daniel Robitaille and is infuriated to find them on display at a local art gallery ran by a friend of hers, as she feels it exploits his tragedy. Caroline wants to protect Robitaille's legacy and promote his work as an artist. She also denies that any truth to Candyman legends. While at the art show, she has dared to say his name five times into a mirror that is part of the exhibit. She accepts the challenge and says his name, determined to put the legend to rest. Because Caroline doesn't believe the legend, Candyman comes to her and begins killing those close to her one by one, starting with the artist responsible for the Robitaille exhibit. He also kidnaps her friend and love interest, David, and frames Caroline for all the murders. Caroline is arrested and a police detective is also murdered by Candyman while Caroline is in the car with him. This ramps up and the investigation putting her on the radar of Detective Kraft, who has already sexually harassed her and has no intention of bringing her in alive. After many twists and turns, Caroline ends up being kidnapped by a gang who worships the Candyman. They take her to an abandoned building and call Candyman in the hopes of sacrificing Caroline to him, but Candyman kills all of them instead. Candyman reveals to Caroline that her mother called him to give herself to him to protect her daughter. He implores Caroline to give herself over to him as well and join the rest of her family in death. Caroline refuses, fights back, and destroys the portrait of Candyman, which contains what's left of his soul. Caroline explores the building and finds David alive but injured. Caroline is then attacked by Detective Kraft, who tries to kill her with a hook, but he is shot by another suspicious detective who had been following him. Detective Kraft is held responsible for all of the killings, and the Candyman legend is put to an end. And that doesn't even include everything going on in this movie. Yeah, they they do cover a lot of ground in this one. Yes, they certainly do. Um, So much like the second one, I couldn't find like a ton of production history on this movie. Um, But it is co-produced by Tony Todd, which is which is always cool. I mean, he definitely like really owns this role and loves it. And it was directed by Turi Meyer, who has done like a lot of like CW type stuff and the writer, same thing, a lot of CW type stuff. So that, yes, it absolutely does. Um, But one of the main things I want to talk about right off the bat is the actress who is the protagonist in this film. Yes, yes. Um, The progression that we get through these films is as follows. So, of course, we get... (laughs) Talented, strong, 
beautiful Virginia Madsen in the first one. Mm-hmm. And then in the second one, we get the mom from the OC. Is that really? I didn't know. That. Yes, she is. That's the only thing I know her from. I'm sure she's done plenty of other things, but you know, still believable as like a normal woman, still Somewhat pretty grounded. strong. Yes, yes. And then in this movie, we get, let's see, what is her name? Her name is Caroline. Donna DeErico oh, is the actress's name. Yes. And she was apparently um, a staple on Baywatch. Oh. She was a Playboy centerfold model. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she was also married, <laughs> married to Nikki Six. <laughs> I don't know who that is. <laughs> oh, it's the bass player for Motley Crue. Oh, okay. See, I'm not in in the hair metal stuff. Sorry. So, you know, it's, I'm not here to like judge anybody's career, but it's just, it's, we've come a long way from Virginia Madsen. Yeah. And it's, uh, it comes down to like the performance really. This is, um, I mean, for being like, you know, a Playboy centerfold and featured on Baywatch and all that stuff, you know, they don't spend too much time like focusing on her body as much as you would expect. This is true. Yeah, which I, I was kind of like right from the get go. I was like, okay, well, they've got a bombshell here. Um, I'm sure they're going to use it to the full horror advantage that they do in so many other slashers. But they showed some restraint with that. And uh, really, the issues are kind of centered around the acting for me. Yeah. Well, and I was definitely like put off that like the very first scene, like we have her like running around in like a little t shirt and panties. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh boy. I was like, okay, this this is definitely what this is. But I will say that um I actually found her a lot more likable than I thought I was going to. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that they made her an artist, which they don't really revisit that. Like you see it at the beginning and that's kind of it. Mm-hmm. Um but she did kind of win me over a little bit. I mean, and I liked that she, you know, she's she knows her family history. She's embraced her family history. She's trying to, like, clear her great, great, great grandfather's, you know, name. Um, so I did like all of that about her. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that you're right. Like, she has more weight, uh, like, and presence and, and more respectability than you kind of get the impression of in that first scene, because the first scene of this movie is what we find out is a dream sequence of her being attacked by Candyman and uh, stabbed through the gut, which happens to just about every victim in this movie. Um, uh, the same style too. But anyway, uh, yeah, so she, and she's in her like bra or not bra and panties, but her white, you know, white t-shirt and, and panties and all that stuff. And they do find reasons to put her in that outfit a couple times. Yes, they do. Um, so like just the way that's setting up, I'm like, okay, well, this is a bombshell type person. Um, you know, she's in skimpy clothing. She gets killed right away with not a whole lot of pomp and circumstance around it. This is not boding well for things. I don't know how I'm going to feel about her the rest of this movie. And t- to be fair, I, I didn't come around completely, but I agree with you that she like the way that they set up the character was not so it wasn't so one dimensional as to be completely repulsive to watch. Uh, it was just, uh, you know, not quite there for me. So we can right. get to that, I guess. Um, another interesting casting choice is um, her love interest. David is yeah. Nick Corey, who was in Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm-hmm. And he was the guy who was falsely accused of killing Tina in Nightmare on Elm Street. And then they made him the guy that's falsely accused of killing the first batch in this movie. And I was like, well, that's a fun little bit. 
Well, when you got a when you got a market corner, do you really just got to go for it? Just yeah, keep plumbing I, that well. I was also like, okay, dude, you were supposed to be like eighteen in nineteen eighty four. So, like, how <laughs> old are you supposed to be now? Because you got to be in your forties at this point. Yeah, I mean, at least he's not meant to be eighteen in this one, though. So, yeah. like, so it's he's ambiguous. got a child. Yeah, it's pretty ambiguous. Is uh, is he Hispanic? I believe he is. Okay. All right. I was like, he looked kind of white to me at first. I was like, are they doing brown face right now? And I just wasn't sure. But um, yeah, so he and his, he, he meets Caroline or I'm sorry. Yeah. He meets Caroline through Miguel, the gallery owner, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, uh, he was placed as He's a stunt actor. actor at the gallery mm-hmm. to like scare everybody. Yeah. Um, and let's talk a little bit too about the whole like day of the dead gimmick because in the second one, we got, you know, the Mardi Gras gimmick, mm-hmm. um, which like, I got in love, but didn't hate. And then this one, I was like, what are they doing with all of these random holidays? So uh, how did you <laughs> feel about, do you, like, do you know the history of Day of the Dead? Like, do you have much of a frame of reference? Like, oh, I've seen Coco. That's all you need so, to know. Yeah. So my, my exposure is pretty limited with Day of the Dead. I mean, aesthetically, I've seen it all over. It's very hot property in these days, for sure. Um but I, I wouldn't say I know the history of it very well. I understand the correlation that they appear to be trying to draw is about memory and keeping somebody's soul alive through memory. Um, but that isn't really played strongly enough or it's not really explicitly stated. And especially at a time back then where, you know, it wasn't such a hot commodity to, you know, the, the broader American audience, the idea of Day of the Dead. I don't know that that would have landed back then because it was hard for me to even like, oh, okay, I see that's what they're, that's the correlation they're drawing here, but it's not strong enough. And it really troubles me on some level that, you know, in the first movie, they, there was no, there, if there was a gimmick, the gimmick was let's address social societal racism. Um, and then that devolved into here's a, a holiday from a non-white culture. Let's just use that. <laughs> it's kind of got yeah. to be a little bit uh, on heavier on the gimmick side, if you will. Yeah. I, um, I thought it was going to be a little messier than it was actually. And I do like um, the parallels that it draws as far as, you know, she's trying to preserve his legacy. And that's Mm -hmm. basically what Day of the Dead is about is honoring your ancestors and remembering your ancestors. And, you know, you put their picture on the altar and you that's where like the sugar skulls come from and like food Mm -hmm. offerings and stuff. So I liked the parallel that they were drawing just from Day of the Dead happening while these events are happening. Mm -hmm. But I would have preferred that they didn't bring in like the abuela and like the wise Mexican woman who like knows how to deal with spirits and that whole section I wish just like wasn't there right like the racism is thick in this one but it's really just coming out of the one character of detective what's his name Karn Craft uh Craft yes yeah yeah I that whole the the racist cops to me were well obviously like the times we're living in I think we pick up Mm -hmm. on that a lot more but also I mean this was like several years but still somewhat fresh after the whole Rodney King incident and we're in LA. So Mm -hmm. I think it was really easy to kind of put that upon them. Um, And especially again, like I feel like the whole Candyman franchise kind of like repeats themes. And so it's just sort of that repeated theme 
of, mm-hmm. you know, you've got the cop who's in a position of authority hunting down the Hispanic guy that he thinks is guilty, much mm-hmm. like Daniel Robitaille was, you know, hunted down in the first one. So I definitely I mean, at first I was like, oh, this is going to be kind of cliche. But as it went through, I was like, OK, I kind of see what they're doing with this. And then we can talk about the end a little bit later. But I was like, OK, so they did kind of bring this full circle. It is another one of those things. It's kind of like it's there's a lot going on, mm-hmm. but I did appreciate it on some level. See, I, I mean, I kind of felt differently. I thought that to, to me it was, um, you know, it's it's not you know, like you said, in the times we're living in now, we're like, like on, on maximum watch for this sort of thing. But even that, even saying that it felt like this was so on the nose. It's like, okay, well, we got to have an element of racism in here because that's part of what the series has, has focused on. And obviously with the first one, that was part of what made the first one a success is that it's focused on that theme. Um, but they just needed a vessel for all the reprehensible, like the worst case scenario racist cop is this racist cop. This is not like a, you know, civil servant who hides it. Well, this is not somebody who's low key might say something in the back room. This is a guy who's just dropping slurs like to everyone. And it's like, this is overtly hateable character. I I immediately distrust the film from like, why is this film trying so hard to get me to hate this guy? And a weird little journey with that guy. He's also sexually harassing Caroline. Yeah. Every time he interacts with her. Absolutely. So you're, so you're right. I mean, there is no, there is no uh, attempt to make this a more complicated character. That is is not a a guy with depth. That's a guy with two strong impulses racism and uh and sex sexual assault i guess so and before we move on from just kind of the synopsis i do want to say because i feel like we've been we've been like pretty kind thus far this movie is straight up a mess it's terrible (laughs) i mean it really is um i messaged bob and i was like because he had told me he's like oh i started it but i didn't finish it And he kind of didn't let on, you know, and so I I messaged him and I was like, dude, I was like, I just paused the movie because I felt like they were wrapping it up and I have 30 more minutes. Yeah, man. Seriously, this this movie drags because you just don't want to be watching it after a certain point. And there's one major critique and major thing. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I was looking for it. Did they use the Candyman theme in this movie at all? Oh, I don't think that they did. I was looking for it. Not in the intro. I'm like, not. That's so, that's reprehensible. Yeah, (laughs) because I love that piece of music. It's so good. All the whole score, yeah, is great. It was such a good score. And, you know, I expect a a diminishing returns on slasher sequels. It's just the name of the game a lot of the times until you get to the reboot era and things start, you know, I don't know, falling all over the place. But at the time, like, you know, you would expect this to have diminishing returns. But this is so much more rote copying from the second one uh, than it is its own thing and then to just extract some of those essential qualities like the score i don't know what was the thinking behind changing the score because that would have been a really really easy tie-in to like get get you there you know yeah get you emotionally primed for Mm -hmm. candy man as a a, if you at least that way you would be and the thing is they they're not afraid of the legacy of the other movies this movie embraces them wholeheartedly and like it tries to build on them poorly in my opinion but it tries to build on them why not build on the like all of the aesthetics of the originals too i don't i don't get it <laughs> yeah you doubted me and yet you call my name believe 
let's move on to the next section, which is discussing the lore of Candyman. Now, we get, as with the other two movies, we get the recap of the whole mm-hmm. incident with the mob. We get it again, and we actually get it twice. Caroline gives it to us. She's telling her friend early in the movie, and then we see it again later. And it changes a little bit. It changes a little bit every time. In the first movie, we get kind of flashes of it. In the second movie, we get more of it with like more dialogue and more gore. And mm-hmm. we get the, they add the whole mirror with the soul. And then in this one, I noticed that it's like nighttime and he's like tied, like strapped up onto like an apparatus. He's not on the <laughs> ground. And I was like, this is strange. And then I thought, well, it is it's kind of like a real life urban legend in that, like, mm-hmm. you know, the story starts simple and then like as time goes on and people like add their own details and add their own stuff, it kind of evolves into where it's not the true story anymore. So I was like, you know, I can I can get on board with that, I suppose. If, if I may say, that sounds a, a little bit like uh, excuses to me. <laughs> um, I don't know that the I don't know that that was a thought process going in. If it oh, is, yeah. I'll, I'll happily accept it's the L just, on that. It's but, just uh, my thought process. I don't that think is it's a good the filmmakers. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. I, I like that's good apologia on our part, but I don't think that's necessarily what the movie was going for. I don't think it was making any comments about the nature of urban legends, and <laughs> not yeah. at this point in the game. But yeah, the lore itself is is shown again and I can get behind that interpretation of it or whatever, but you know, this is also has a smacks of, you know, slasher sequelitis where it has, you know, every, every movie has a different weakness for you to exploit as the protagonist. And this time, in this case, it's the image, uh, the self portrait of Daniel Robitaille mm-hmm. and it's set up with the whole altar, like day of the dead. And she mm-hmm. has to destroy it to destroy mm-hmm. the memory mm-hmm. of, and that's like, I, I don't hate that as a concept, but again, it's just sort of like, you know, it's like, you know, in, in nightmare on Elm street, you have in every movie, okay, we, uh, Oh, you have to bury the bones. Oh no, you have to put the bones back. Oh no. You have to like re-knit the sweater or whatever it is this (laughs) this week. And it just feels like, okay. I mean, I understand retconning and all that stuff and it's a slasher sequel, but Still, it doesn't exactly, you know, hold up to scrutiny, I don't think. Yeah, no, it doesn't. And I I did really like um, seeing his work, though, especially like in mm-hmm. the, the gallery setting. And um, I liked that we got to see like a little bit of him and Caroline actually together. I mean, it was super cheesy, mm-hmm. but I was like, it does make him a little more human. And that's something that I've talked to both uh, Justin and Bob about is how even though he is, um, you know, he's a slasher, he's he's a monster. He's he's still there's like a little like thread of humanity with him yeah. throughout all of the films. And it might yeah, be because of that on. family tie. Yeah. Um, and I uh, so I liked at the end that we still like sort of have his portrait, but I was like, wait a minute. I thought his soul lived in the mirror and now he's like attached to the portrit, you know? So it's next, year, like next one's going to be the beehive or the, yeah. Or yeah it's in the hook. Yeah. Oh, um, we got to find his hook is in just, the, yeah. yeah. We have to throw his hook back into the hive where it belongs. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's to, to me, like going back to the paintings, um, I was very troubled by these paintings and not because they were particularly disturbing or anything, but because they were photographs. Um, <laughs> they were very obviously photographs. And I was like, man, this is not like, I under, like, again, it's diminishing returns. It's lower budgets this time around, but man, they had such cool artwork 
in both of the first two movies, uh, certainly in the first one, like really awesome stuff. And this time they just really cheaped out on the most important art art in the in the whole movie. Yeah, which Um, makes you wonder, too, though, like they had to like pay a photographer so like you couldn't pay a fine artist to- i mean they, who says they i mean if they have a director of photography already on the payroll i guess it that's saves them true. money i don't yeah. know that's but that's true <laughs> i don't know if that falls in the same purview but when you're you know making ends meet as a producer i guess you do what you got to do and you know i don't begrudge that but like just on, on an art level it's it's such a wasted opportunity you're going to show us daniel robitaille's actual artwork now which we've seen in the past as being like certainly handmade and, and nice but it's so plainly photographic mm-hmm. it's just a uh, it, yeah it's a bad taste in the second one we get that big uh like giant portrait of caroline mm-hmm. where she's like holding the mirror and i i can't remember if if that one like like painting wise looked any better or not. But I do remember that part in the movie where he like unveils it being kind of a big deal. So yeah, the second one, like it had, I would say like less interesting art, but it was still handmade art. Right. (laughs) That's the bare minimum acceptable Candyman art for me. Um, Poor Daniel Robitaille's legacy's just been smeared all over the place. He's photorealistic. Wow. (laughs) Um, No, I, I don't understand what that stuff. And the idea that Miguel, the gallery owner is, like completely subverting the will of the person who owns the art, which is Caroline. That really pissed me off. Like this character yeah. of, of Caroline is, is so toothless, especially at the beginning. She's letting her friends just walk all over her, and it doesn't seem like she has an arc that corrects that necessarily. She just kind of rolls with the punches as she can. I don't know, man. It seems like we such a downgrade from our first two protagonists. Yeah, for sure. I guess it would have uh, made a little more sense. Like if she owns the artwork, how did he like, did he tell her it was going to be one kind of exhibition and then she got there and it was something else maybe? Well, she, it said, he said they had a conversation that implied that she, you know, she gave him the artwork without telling him that this is the person who inspired the candy man. Oh, myth. and then he, okay. And he found out and started exploiting. And she's like, no, there's a reason I didn't do that. And yeah. he's like, oh, but I gotta make a, I gotta make my gallery, get my name for my gallery. It's okay. Stay and she's like, well, okay. My principles don't matter, I guess. <laughs> I don't know, man. Oh, uh, another note about the lore is that, um, you know, I'm not 100% sure why he's always trying to kill his loved ones. Because in the first one, it's Michael ambi- Myers syndrome. It, I, you know, maybe, <laughs> but it's like kind of ambiguous in the first one. Cause like we find out that, oh, it's Helen, his like re- reincarnated lover. And it's kind of the Dracula thing where like, oh, did he just want to be with her again? And like he's seducing her to like just be with him again. But then in the second one, when he's trying to kill his great granddaughter, like that's a little. Like why? And then even in this one. So it's just like, is it I'm like, is it because of like the evil act has turned him into a monster? And like, this is just all he has left now. And he was like robbed of a family and life. So now he wants them all to be with him in death, which, by the way, carries over into the day of the dead theme. But I remember having that very distinct thought when he's trying to like entice Caroline of like, why is he just why is he trying to kill his like last family member? I don't know. And and uh, I. <laughs> Okay, I have to take a, like two steps back on this and note that this movie is set in 2020, by the way. 
does not look or behave anything like we would expect 2020 because Very it had strange. no way of knowing. Very bizarre though, but it has to be. And the reason is they needed to cast a buxom young woman in a role that was four years prior played by what a seven-year-old or something <laughs> like or yes was she even in that last one she, she was right she was in it at the very end so it's like um annie who's mm-hmm. the protagonist in the second one is pregnant whenever she right. like defeats the candy man that's right and so the very end of the movie her daughter is yeah like maybe five maybe seven and she's like telling him oh this was your grandfather blah 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 so even that timeline has to be kicked out further so she can be like a young adult you know, this seems like it's really kind of cribbing off of Halloween more than I anticipate. I just said that as a joke, but like we're looking at the era of the time. This was in the Halloween four and five era where you have Michael Myers doggedly hunting down every member of his family as he was wont to do at the time. Um, I don't know. This movie has that as well. And you have like a child protagonist. Actually, know? this movie was Halloween H2O era. Okay, so yeah, so like it had already been out. They so had doesn't the benefit that of feel, seeing how it works for them. Yeah, that that yeah. feels like it all belongs in the kind of the same the same time for sure. It's just <laughs> it's, it's none too good. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah. Sorry, anything, but the lore. Yes. Yeah, anything anything else that you have to add about about the lore, the family concepts or any of that stuff? I don't like uh, it's like he's trying to kill his family. I also want to point out he's very interested in being sexually explicit with his offspring. Yes. Further offspring, especially in this one. Very strange. Like again, it feels like, like if you want to have that happen, fine. If you want to have a buxom young woman as your protagonist, fine. Just don't have it be part of the family. Think of another angle and you're good. But this movie was dedicated to two things, cribbing off the other two heavily and putting in, uh, like a, a sexy woman as the lead role and like not, they didn't, they, like I said, they didn't push that as far as they could have, but it wasn't very passionate about changing the story to match what they aesthetically wanted. Obviously. I don't know. The yeah. aesthetics all off in this movie. Entirely. And her name is even Caroline, which was Candyman's lover's name. Right. So like, that's a little not confusing, but like strange. I remember really when I was tr- looking up her name, I was like, Oh, they named her that. And he's like trying to kiss her at the end. The script seems like a first draft to me. I got to be honest with you. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like it holds together um, on any, any real level. So did not have a talented editor, I would say involved. (laughs) Or at least it doesn't seem like they had a whole lot of people except for Tony that, you know, loved and respected the character. I know, which God love him. Like he's great. Yeah. He doesn't do a bad job in this. No. He's just un, like misused and he, like are going through the same beats as the first movie, but with a person who is related to him, who he's trying to be sexually explicit with and then infusing in like one or two day of the dead style, like ways of or, or, or lore, lore nuggets in there mm-hmm. in order to justify that setting, which they don't even really use that much as you know what I mean? Like No, which is interesting. Cause I mean, that whole Hispanic culture, especially around Day of the Dead, like it's colorful and it's vibrant and there's a lot of visual stuff that, you know, could have been pulled from that if you were going to lean into it for sure. And it's so weird because also because, you know, Candyman's African-American and that's like his whole story is specifically about that experience. (laughs) And that's not the same. I mean, it's not the same experience. So I don't know what it it seems like they they just kind of threw it in very haphazardly and really spent 
10 minutes trying to make it work, found an angle that they felt like worked and then just didn't put any more thought into yeah. it. I agree because I felt that the New Orleans angle kind of naturally fit Candyman. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe they were like, oh, well, we did the Mardi Gras thing. Yeah. What if we did another holiday? Like, Candyman's let's make in it every work. City. Yeah, let's make it work. And he has so. no ties to L.A. except for his offspring being there, right? I don't think he was ever like in, in New Orleans, he was raised there or something born there yeah born there born there which makes sense right like that's not a far stretch at all yeah i don't know man i don't know you are not content with the stories so i was obliged to come Let's move on to something a little more fun. Let's talk about the best kill. What was your favorite kill? Oh, which hook through the belly do I like best? No, I was going to say my favorite was Miguel's model girlfriend who gets eaten alive by bees. That was probably my favorite purely because it was the, as far as I can remember, like I can't remember any other kills that weren't somebody being stabbed through the chest or stomach with the hook from behind usually when you aren't expecting it. They do that at least three times in this movie. So this is like the only unique kill in the movie and that's been done in previous ones. So uh, yeah, I guess it's that. If you can remind me of any that I've forgotten, I I just don't remember any that are any more than that. (laughs) Yeah. I struggled as well um, as I was watching the movie to, cause the other two were really easy for me to pick mine out, like right off Mm -hmm. the bat. But this one I was like, Hmm, it does all feel kind of samey. I did like the bees. Half star for Yabos. Um, <laughs> That's copyrighted. <laughs> um, if you guys don't know what that means, you need to listen to more straight chilling. Um, <laughs> but my favorite one was when she was in the cop car and the cop is like teasing her and making fun of her and like, nah, 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 candy man. Nah, nah, nah. Oh. And all of a sudden he gets it like through the mouth and it comes through the back. That's of true. There's a headrest. mouth. Yes. It yeah, was particularly okay. gruesome and there's blood and there's glass breaking and she's freaking out and she gets away. But I think part of the reason why I liked it is because he was like teasing her and making her trying to make her feel stupid and crazy. And yeah. then he gets it. Yeah. And like that guy, he like throughout the movie, he's like the second fiddle racist cop. And there's a moment there where I think maybe he's like, they're going to have him turn and be actually the, like the good cop who is not necessarily good, but at least the one who can be reached through reason and isn't constantly drunk. But no, like seconds after I had that thought, he started being like, Oh, I'm afraid of the candy man and stuff like that. It's like, okay, well you just turn into every fourth grades graders bully so you gotta go gotta go man <laughs> um while we're talking about kills um i briefly want to talk about Candyman's look a little bit because mm-hmm. i uh it's something that i noticed it's they streamlined it quite a bit he's like in pretty much all black because in the first one i feel like he had a little more flair um mm-hmm. he had a little more color he had that really big fur color on his coat it was like really striking Um, And in this one, it's all black. He still has the fur, but it's a little more toned down and he's just like a little more slick. And I actually really liked that. You know, I got to say, I didn't I I didn't register for me. I I didn't really notice it until the very end. And I was like, oh, I kind of like this look. 
is it was it when he was like come to me and be in be part of death with me forever and then she's just like no and runs by him and he's just looking over his shoulder as she runs to destroy him he's like please don't the yeah there's definitely scene. you know you get My you get this you, know, you get the scene where he like opens his jacket and he's got the mm-hmm. rib cage and the bees that's probably when i noticed like the oh look at his jacket it's kind of yeah. nice so, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I love the more organic original Candyman. I mean, that's my favorite, yeah. but but I, I liked this one as well. The thing that bothered me about Candyman's evolution from the, even in the second one is they kind of dropped the voice affectation that he had in the first one. He was really reverby and echoey in that first mm-hmm, movie. Mm-hmm. And it was Haunting. so like imposing. But yeah, but then it just sort of slowly turned into Tony Todd just being Tony Todd a little bit and <laughs> being like, please come with me or what? I don't know. He just sounds like a, a, a math teacher or something at some points, <laughs> which I mean, the man's got an amazing voice, but yeah, I think the, the people in that first movie definitely had a lot of vision and a lot of creativity mm-hmm. and like knew what to do with, like you said, the art and the music and the right. actors. They didn't skimp. Exactly. Yeah. It took, took what they had and like elevated it to a really great level. <laughs> Okay, so I, I mean, I think we've arrived at overall thoughts. Unless there's anything else you want to discuss before we get into overall thoughts. I mean, no, it's it's all blending together in my mind anyway, so we may as well move it. <laughs> all right, uh, you go first. Give me your thoughts first. Okay, so this is not a good movie. This is the first thing. Um, it's not fun to watch, really, and the things that are fun about it are almost exclusively things cribbed from previous entries in this in the movie in this franchise. Um, Tony Todd is not really, doesn't get a whole lot to build on from what he already had. I feel like, like, I don't think we get a lot more out of him than we got in the other movies. Nope. Uh, and he's the best part of this movie as he should be, but he sh- they should at least give him like really interesting kills or something. Um, the, the, like I like I was saying before, the thing that sticks out to me most about this movie is how skimped it seems on everything pretty much on the artwork on the acting on the, the, the stages or sorry the 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 sets if you're out if you're indoors in this movie you are clearly in a sound stage that is sparsely decorated um it's just it doesn't really work it has it's on the same quality level as i don't know like like a cw show really mm-hmm. um and the acting matches that up perfectly. And then you've got like really weird things like the person who casted that gang or whatever. Oh my gosh. At, when they were at the art gallery at the beginning, I was sitting there and like, to, has, this person is, whoever wrote this has clearly never set foot in any art gallery ever. I've never seen somebody with freaking like a, a nose piercing chain going back to his ear. Like, and then like, like, he looks like Billy Idol. Like why is Billy Idol and his merry men all hanging out in this art gallery? And then eventually they be turn out to be a gang, which is even more preposterous. <laughs> They're worshiping Candyman. Yeah. It's like, it's like the West side story version of a Billy Idol fronted gang. That's what we get <laughs> in this movie as a major antagonist and plot point. It's just a shame. And it's, I don't know. I could list point by point all I want, but the truth of the matter is it's just not that strong of a movie. These, some of these characters look like they belong in Batman and Robin more than they belong in uh, uh, Candyman or a slasher. Even like Spot you, think on. About, you think about the grounding of the first movie and even the second one is much better than this in that regard. Like it's more grounded. You have characters that behave in a way you might expect our lead act, not our lead character and our lead actress, but the lead character 
is totally toothless and not mm-hmm. like you, it's hard to root for because she's just kind of like letting things happen to her. And that's not a recipe for a, a compelling protagonist at all. So for me, it just, it's not fun. And I think it should be kind of stricken from the record, really, if we're, especially now that we've exited the reboot era or we're back in, in this case, it's starting the reboot era for itself. I think it has a lot more it could offer that is of more substance, less gimmicky. Uh, I mean, the way things are shaping up for that new one is, is clearly they're, they're not interested in anything this movie had to say. Yeah. <laughs> that's my feeling on it. And I think that's the wise way to go. Not a great film. I'm, I'm, I'm sad that, uh, you know, it's a clunker for Tony, but I'm, I'm glad that, you know, he gets to reclaim the mantle a little bit or pers- presumably we don't know. Fully yeah. It's, we think he's, he's in it to some degree. We don't know what, yeah. what, to what degree, but this movie would be a bad one to go out on in the character. Oh, for sure. If, for, if nothing else, we need a new candy man just so that that's not the last one for sure. Yeah. I agree <laughs> with you. Yeah. I mean, my, my overall thoughts are very much the same. Like, like I said before, I think it's just really a mess. Um, like I said, going in, I expected to not like it. And like the first maybe 30 minutes or so, I was like, okay, I like this more than I thought I was going to. And then like promptly after that is when we just dove into Candyman gang members and <laughs> abuelas that know about the spirits and just all the things. And and yeah. it, I found it really difficult to, to, yeah, like pay attention. I mean, if I hadn't been taking notes, I think it, it would have been really, really difficult. Um, like I said earlier, I don't I don't mind the the Day of the Dead like themes that are present. I just wish that it would have been a little bit more of a backdrop and not an active role in the movie mm-hmm. um, like they did with Mardi Gras and Farewell to the Flesh. It's like happening at that time, but it doesn't have an active role in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I mean, it just went in so many directions and there just wasn't a person that had a clear vision for what they wanted this movie to be. And I think honestly, it has a lot to say about the time it was released in. Um, You know, the late nineties wasn't necessarily the best time for horror. We were kind of in a transition. And so I post scream world. Oh yeah. And we didn't know what was next, you know? So I think there was a lot of that, like, Oh, let's do a slick slasher. And they were like, Oh, Candyman's cool. Like let's do another one of those. And I feel like that's how this got made. Um, It just, it just didn't have any of the like heart and originality that was in the original or even some, some of that that was in the second one. There's just like, none of that's left. Um, I do appreciate, though, in the end, when uh, Caroline takes the opportunity that she's given, which is to blame the corrupt detective Mm -hmm. for all the deaths. And so Caroline decides, okay, I'm going to let the legend die. We're going to blame it on the detective. And that's going to be the end of the Candyman legend. And that really is the end. There's no jump scare. There's no post credit scene where it's like, ah, he's coming back. And I was like, wow. That's not usually what we get. So I did appreciate that about the mm-hmm. end of this movie. I mean, yeah, on scrutiny again, it just, it doesn't hold up for me. <laughs> the idea that, I mean, I, I understand, I, I get that that is the arc. Okay. This is a, like, it's a w- good way of tying that character in and making him essential to the plot. And it's the only reason why he was in the note. movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise he doesn't make any sense for being there, but 
you know, logically speaking, that's not going to stop anybody from saying Candyman to a mirror. So I don't like the Candyman legend is not going to die because there was another killing involved with the Candyman. It's not going to end there. In the first movie, we saw a guy masquerading as the Candyman and him going out and killing people was contributing to Candyman's existence. So I don't understand why this should end Candyman other than the movie wants a conclusion. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, she could have easily stuck to her guns and been like, no, it wasn't the detective. He's real. It was really him. But she's, I mean, I guess yeah. she's not even going to tell, I don't know. I guess the, um, the insinuation is that like, she's not going to pass that down to like the people close to her, her family. Yeah. She's just not going to pass it down. Well, that was the same thing that happened with her mother in the previous movie. And then at the beginning of this one, you know, we saw how that ended. She oh. got coerced by the dark side somehow. Yeah. I don't know. Like that was such a disappointment. I hate when they do that. was another thing. Yeah. Another Halloween four or five connection is having your likable main protagonist from the last one just completely decimated in the first five minutes of this next one. No good. What a shame. Okay, so let's like, let's leave this one and let's talk a little bit about some of the other ones. So um, do you have any particular comments that you want to make about the first two films in the franchise? And are there elements from the franchise that you want to see carried through to the new adaptation? Uh, From the whole franchise? Yeah. Um, I would, I mean, yeah, definitely. There, there, There are things that are essential to Candyman, right? There's the bees, the hook, Tony Todd, I would say. Um, there's there's a lot of things that you might, I think the, 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 the soundtrack, that, that one lick, which they used so beautifully in the first two um, and is so great. Uh, those are essential, I think, and, and the backstory of, of racism and racism being sort of like the evil impetus for this slasher existing. Um, I, I don't think those things are dispensable and it definitely seems like they're going in that direction based on the trades of this new one. I, obviously it's, it's based on, it's in Cabrini green, but it's gentrified now. And what mm-hmm. is that like? And mm-hmm. is that good? Is that bad? What, mm-hmm. how do, how do we feel about that? Um, you know, painting over suffering and all that stuff. So I think those things are definitely going to be brought, like they clearly are being brought in and to its benefit. I don't know that I would bring in anything from the other two movies though. Um, even return to the flesh. Like I like the backdrop, like you said, like that was great, but it didn't to me add anything special to the lore, except a few things that were immediately disregarded in this movie, the third one. So I, I think that those things can be tossed aside and, like the legend of Candyman being like word of mouth passed around from kid to kid. Like how many kids still say bloody Mary in front of the mirror to this oh, day, yeah. even though I can't tell you the history of the words bloody Mary. I have no idea where that originally came from. So it doesn't really matter though. It's all about psyching yourself out as a kid and wanting to do something that seems dangerous. That's totally not. So <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's how urban myths work. And I would love to see a lot more playing with the idea of urban myths but on a more realistic grounded level, which even the first one kind of only semi did it, it talked about it directly, but it didn't really um, capture it for me. Like the nature of just people passing things around and then becoming, you know, suddenly set in stone um, culturally. I, I, I didn't fully get that in the first one, even which I love the first one, but I think they could explore that a little more. Yeah. That um kind of mystery 
uh, of the first one I would love to see in the new one. Uh, it has that sort of experimental feel and you're, you're not always sure where you're at in the timeline and, and things jump around and it's just has a very, it's a very strange moody feel. And uh, I, I would love to see that in this one. Um, I will say one thing from this one that I would love to see is, is some of the artwork. Like if we had some of his artwork in the new adaptation, I think that would be mm. great. Um, maybe not framed in gold hanging in a gallery, you know, <laughs> yeah. but is there like a, a a piece of graffiti or something, some like weird organic thing that was like a, a, a Daniel Robitaille created thing. Like I would, I would love to see some of that. Well, as I, I mean, at least based on the trailers, this new one appears to have an artist as the lead. Yeah. So that's odd. I mean, I think that's pretty clear that they're, drawing some stark comparisons between him and Robitaille right there. So we might get to see him, you know, produce some Robitaille-esque art uh, just as a matter of course for the movie. We might. And I I would love that. Yeah. Like the aesthetically, they're really going back to something more sturdy than these last two movies um, just based on the trailers again. But I agree. Yeah. Mm. All right. So, uh, what you got to plug, Randy Gandy G. Landy? Oh, man. Uh, if you guys want to have a, a less good time, you can come listen to our podcast, I guess. Uh, I'm sure the other two sold it better than I will. I'm the, I'm the, what's the opposite of a hype man? That's me for the podcast. A bummer dude. I'm a bummer dude. And this bummer dude's telling you that if you hate yourself enough, you'll go to straightchillingpodcast.com and say Randy Gandy G Landy five times in the mirror and then <laughs> you'll be able to listen to us talk over each other for an hour and a half every week. It's great. No, I'm, I'm down and I'm just being like ridiculous. It's we, we review horror movies, uh, a new one every week and we've been doing it for a thousand years now. I don't know a long time and we have a good time with it. So come on by very casual. Yeah. Well, and you guys are fun and you, you do, something completely different than I do. So I'm always pointing people in my audience to you guys because I I don't do, you know, recent horror really. And it's just me with my Mm -hmm. own thoughts. And so I think you guys really bring a a great dynamic. And I've said for a long time that like, even before I knew you guys, it feels like we're all friends and we're, you know, being nerdy about horror movies. So I think it's great. (laughs) I'm a friend to all. Yeah. Come to straightchillingpodcast.com and listen (laughs) to your new friends talk about movies and what about your artwork where can people see your stuff oh my um yeah so i am a freelance designer animator and illustrator and you can find my stuff at my name andy gaddis a-n-d-y-g-a-t-t-i-s dot com you'll find a demo reel and a bunch of artwork there you can also find me on instagram it's just my name again um where i will i spend a lot of time posting artwork for a long time and now i do occasionally still so uh, yeah that's that's probably the best places awesome well that's it folks uh we have taken the time to cover all three films in the Candyman franchise and it has been an interesting and enjoyable journey and uh i think it's safe to say that we've really done our homework and we are fully prepared uh for the new Candyman coming out later this year we hope. And uh, I'm sure that that film's going to have its own unique set of ups and downs, but I have no doubt that it will be a worthy chapter in the strange legend of Candyman. So thanks again for being with me, Randy. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was a good time. Thanks for tuning in. I would like to say thanks so much to the guys at Straight Chilling for joining me on the series. 
For weekly horror review, both past and present, tune into the Straight Chilling Podcast on your favorite podcast app. You can find links to their content in the show notes. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to help other people find the show. Until next time, be mindful of mirrors and stay spooky. Candy man, 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 candy man